This episode of A Slice of Ham is brought to you by Jordan Maloney, Seth Godwin, Heather Aranda, August Reed, Marty Abernathy, Christy Knapp, Leslie Gettinger, Mindy Carrier, Rebecca Handy, Allie McDowell, Shauna, Shelby Wheeler, Shalan Lane, Kimberly Newell, Crystal Lurvey, Jordan Ackley, Aislinn Wilkerson, Dan Murphy, Callie Madden, Brooke Ponstein, Megan Weimer, Elizabeth, Amanda Haynes, Emily Davis, Miss Meowie, and Sarah McElroy. I'd like to give a huge shout out to my Patreon supporters, my members of the Hamley. Thank you very much for joining me on this journey. Thank you very much for offering your support. I love you all very much. If you are not signed up for the Patreon and you think that it's something that you might uh, be interested in, then go to www.patreon.com slash a slice of ham. There are plenty of tiers. There are plenty of supplemental things that I bring to the table to necessitate the paywall. Necessitate? 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 Ness- Shit! Uh, on to the episode. I'll tell you one thing. I am so excited to almost be done with this book hello hello welcome hi howdy hey how are you welcome to another episode of a slice of ham i hope that you are enjoying yourself i hope that you are ready to read i hope that you're ready to get through this fucking book i think we might be able to get through this book this episode if i'm not mistaken um first of all hi how's everyone doing today i have been i've been all right i've been overwhelmed lately uh, I've been in a little bit of a mental health rut. I've been in a little pocket of depression, but I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I won't say I'm doing good, but I'm doing better than I was a couple days ago. So that's good. So that's good. We're getting better. Um, boy, today I woke up and I was like, oh my God, I know I have a lot of reading to do, but I, uh, I'm not motivated. And then I slept for another two hours and now I'm here. So... Finally getting some stuff done, no matter what the timeline is, even if I'm a couple hours late um, to start, at least I'm starting. So I, I give myself that little victory. If you are new here, um, what the fuck are you doing starting the episode like on chapter 27? You need to go start from the beginning. What the fuck? This is like episode 9. I don't, I don't understand what you're doing here. Um, of course, that's a joke. If you're new here and you don't know what I'm doing here... Hi, welcome to A Slice of Ham. I'm Casey Hamilton. I'm on TikTok. I'm a little TikTok influencer. I have a podcast. I do regular episodes where I talk about stories and rabbit holes, but I also read from a book, different books, uh, random books. Right now I'm reading The Family Next Door by John Glatt, which is about David and Louise Turpin, how they abused their 13 children. Um... And we have read this book from chapter one, and we're almost finished. And I never thought that I... It, it was always like a fleeting idea of mine, like, oh, I'll read books on my podcast. Man, 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 I'll make a podcast just to read books. Man, people want to hear me read out loud. They like hearing me. Because I used to read out loud on my TikTok live streams. I used to read from scary stories to tell in the dark. I used to read from actual books. I used to, you know, really read for the kids. 
Um, <clears throat> and people would say like, oh, it put me to sleep. Like I, I used to watch your lives before I go to bed. Um, and that's awesome. But then I figured, well, why don't you just bring it to the podcast? So that's exactly what I'm doing. So we've been reading The Family Next Door. We are on chapter 27 of, I believe, 31. We are two-thirds of the way through the book. We're almost done. We're almost done with the book. Um, chapters 27, 28, and 29 are pretty lengthy. Um, but then there's 30, 31, and an epilogue. So I think we're just going to be able to knock it out, get through it, no matter how long the episode is. Hey, hey, welcome. If you are not subscribed to my Patreon and you think that that might be something that you're interested in, uh, www.patreon.com slash a slice of ham is the way to go. You're more than welcome to check that out. I also read another book on my secret book club, if that's something you're interested in. $10 a month, you can join the secret book club and read another book with us. Right now, we're reading The Perfect Father by John Glatt, which is all about the Chris Watts case, and it's really fucking fascinating, actually. It's a phenomenal book. I think I like it better than The Family Next Door. Um, because while The Family Next Door is interesting, we I still don't have a clear idea of who David and Louise are. And I think part of that has to do with how they kept... Well, they just kept the whole family and themselves shrouded in mystery and completely sequestered from everybody. But Shanann and Chris Watts had their whole life on Facebook. So we get a clearer picture of who they are, and I empathize with them a little bit more. I don't empathize with the Turpins, because fuck them. So different strokes for different folks. Um, also on the Patreon, there's a $5 tier if you just want to help out. Uh, $10 a month is the Secret Book Club. $20 a month is a movie club where I do movie commentaries. I still have not done one yet, but I'm uh, going to do one at some point, probably tomorrow, do the first movie and commentary. Just I'm going to post the actual movies and the audio files so you don't have to search for them. It's just right there on the Patreon for you guys to have. And then $50 a month, it's a little pricey, but it's for the super fans out there. That is a, a monthly movie, like movie day, movie night, where we hang out on video and audio chat, and then we watch a movie, and then we discuss it, talk about it for a little bit. Uh, I did the first one um, actually a couple days ago, and it was beautiful. It was one of the most intimate, just beautiful experiences that I've ever had. Shout out to Leslie. I love you very much. Okay, without further ado... I've talked enough about me. I've talked enough about what I have going on. I also have a Twitch stream if you want to watch me play video games and, you know, send people over there and subscribe and shout emotes and play sound alerts. You can do that thing. I play a lot of retro games on my Twitch stream. It's twitch.tv slash Hamilton Streams. Enough with the self-promotion, motherfucker. We've got reading to do. So we're going to go ahead and try to finish this book. If you've been along for the ride the whole time, bless you. Um, I'm very grateful that you enjoy hearing me read these books and give my thoughts on them. I'm, I, I'm glad that you enjoy reading, reading this with me together. Um, you know, I'm glad that people enjoy it enough for me to keep doing this, for me to like finish the book, you know, people liked it enough. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Alrighty. Let's jump right into chapter 27. A New Life. On Thursday, March 15th, the seven Turpin adults were secretly whisked away from the Corona Regional Medical Center where they had lived for two months. 
Their attorney, Jack Osborne, and their public guardian escorted them to a rural house at an undisclosed location to begin the next stage of their recovery. The adult siblings want to be known as survivors, not victims, said Osborne, adding that their pet dogs would soon be joining them. Their nurses and doctors, who had all formed close emotional attachments with the siblings, threw them a going-away party before they left. They dined on pizza and sandwiches, and then a karaoke machine was brought in so the siblings could sing their favorite songs. They love to sing, said Mark Uffer, and love to interact with people. They can sense people that actually care for them, so they were very attached. During their two-month stay at the hospital, the seven siblings made a deep impression on everybody they met. Despite all the years of abuse and neglect, they were still capable of feeling love and returning it. And that is what's so heartbreaking, said Uffer. We only need, uh, we only read what the parents allegedly did to them. When you interact with them on a day-to-day basis, you find it really hard to understand how seven young adults and six children could have been abused, yet so capable of giving love back. The siblings and hospital staff were emotional when it came time to say their final goodbyes. This has been their home away from wherever they were at before, said Uffer. It was a touching experience for all on the staff, so the goodbye was a little bit tough. If you asked the nurses, they would all tell you it was a life-changing experience. At the end of the party, the siblings gave each of the staff presents they had made to show their gratitude. It was like a birthday party environment, said Uffer. They made gifts for each of us, little crafts for each one of us. They made bracelets out of beads that they gave to the nurses. They had little scrapbooks that they wanted us to all write messages in before they left so they had something to remember us by. The nursing staff were also given personalized bracelets by the siblings. Uh, Personalized bracelets the siblings had uh, lovingly made as mementos. They gave them from their hearts. That is all they had to give. They truly loved the people they were interacting with over the last two months. Leaving the hospital was a very traumatic moment for the siblings. When the public guardian arrived to collect them, they cried. And when they were taken to the vehicles to take them to their new home, they kept sneaking back into the hospital. They were tearful, said Uffer, and I think a little bit afraid. I told them we weren't going to say goodbye. We are going to say, until we meet again. We are hopeful it wasn't a goodbye. The location of their new home is such a closely guarded secret that no one at the Corona Regional Medical Center has been told where it is. Mark Uffer had wanted to have the nurses and physicians, whom the children now trusted, continue their treatment out of the hospital, but the public guardian had their appointed attorneys immediately cut off all communication. It is a little bit disturbing for us, said Uffer. We were hopeful we could do a transition with them and get them to their new place and wanted to send the nurses and therapists out to make sure, but we have no idea where they are. The hospital CEO said he was also concerned because it could be years before the siblings are ready to live on their own. They have to learn basic skills, he said. Shopping, cooking, laundry, things that we all take for granted. I don't think they have those basic skills yet. It's going to take some work. While their stay at the hospital had helped heal some of their physical wounds, child trauma expert Allison Davis-Maxson observed that the Turpin siblings would now move on to the complicated process of healing emotionally and mentally. Trauma, neglect, and deprivation hits us typically on three general levels, Maxson explained. You have the body, how it's going to hit our physiological system. Extreme neglect may cause some permanent physical issues that the kids may have. 
They may have medical issues or diseases that weren't treated, things that occurred from starvation and extreme neglect. Then you have their psyche, their mind. Why did it happen to me? Was it my fault? Children often think like that. So how their minds heal from this will be important to address in therapy. How they tell the story of their life and what happened to them is critical in their healing from these events. Finally, there was the emotional piece of the healing puzzle. You have children, she said, exposed to tremendous amounts of distress, pain, trauma, violence, and torture. So emotionally, they have accumulated a tremendous amount of toxic stress and pain that needs to be addressed as well. One positive, said the trauma therapist, was that the siblings all went through this nightmare together. This would be an important part of their healing journey. They probably had a level of trust within their bonds with each other, she explained. So while they didn't trust their parents, most likely, they might have developed that trust with their older siblings, and vice versa. They can develop some of those emotional skills because you have older kids taking care of younger kids. And as they're healing in the outside world, the relationships they develop with folks over time and building intimacy and authenticity into those relationships, they can develop an ability to trust. They can experience and learn that not all humans are the same as their mom and dad. According to Maxon, the abrupt removal of the siblings from the connections they'd made at the hospital could be detrimental to their healing. Uh, fuck yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I don't know why that decision was made. Um, it seems like a step in the wrong direction. Children who have horrific childhood experiences with both parents can develop loving, trusting relationships with people who are there for them on an ongoing basis over their lifespan. It doesn't happen quickly, and it shouldn't. What they are going to need are folks permanently committed to them. Maxon said, not a lot of temporary people rotating in and out of their lives, but people that are very committed to them and their healing over the long haul. And that's really healing that relational dance and what we call the corrective experience, making sure they have access to meaningful, long-term, safe, loving, and healing relationships. The day after the older siblings were discharged from Corona Regional Medical Center, Senior investigator Wade Walsvik interviewed Jordan Turpin, who was now living in a foster home. Jordan told him about her miserable life in Murrieta, saying she barely received any education. She equated her level of education to that of a first grader, said Walsvik. The investigator, trained in questioning child abuse victims, said Jordan had accused her father of sexually assaulting her at the Murrieta house. Giving more detail than she had earlier, Jordan said it happened during Thanksgiving 2013 when she was only 12. Father had been sitting in a recliner in the upstairs TV room when he beckoned her over. Um, trigger warning, sexual abuse, of course. This is a moment where, I mean, we've gone over so much abuse. I feel like I have been very, um, I feel like the nature of the book as a whole, the nature of the case as a whole has been a trigger warning, but I, and again, I hadn't, I, I haven't read this book yet. When I read the books on the podcast, I'm reading them for the first time. So I might be triggered by something that I read. Um, and it's looking like they're going to describe the incident of sexual abuse, um, done by David to Jordan. So if, again, if this sounds familiar, you go run and get help. 
And if this is triggering to you and you don't want to hear it, you can skip through it or you can just turn it off and not listen to it. I do not blame you. But here we go. After he pulled her pants down, she pulled them back up, saying she didn't like that. But he pulled them down again, lifted her up, and placed her on his lap. At that point, they heard Mother coming up the stairs, and he let her go. She said her father directed her not to tell anyone, said Walsvik. She described it as one of the worst days of her life. Jordan said that she was so upset, she decided to kill herself. She went into the bathroom and filled up the sink planning to drown herself. But then she changed her mind. There's something so... There's something very sad about that. There's something so innocent and childlike about, like, I can't take it anymore. I'm gonna kill myself. I'm gonna drown myself. I'll fill up the sink. I'll just fill up the sink and stick my head in there and drown myself. When that It's so much harder to drown yourself because your body wants to come up. Your body will come up for air. Um, but it, it's a shame that that's the only, it, that's the only way that she felt that she could escape. And because she is just uneducated, she doesn't, she doesn't have more than a first grade education. She doesn't know. It's odd to say, but she doesn't know how to kill herself. She said, I'll fill up the sink and drown myself. <laughs> Whereas anybody who has tried to kill themselves with more than a grain of salt will tell her, mm, that ain't how you do it. Which is <laughs> terrible to say, you know, dark humor. I've been there before. It just speaks to her complete lack of understanding about how the world works, about how, about how things work. She can't find a way it's one of the saddest fucking things I've ever again this book is filled with like the saddest things I've ever read you know the average person would take a look at Jordan Turpin and go girl that ain't how you do it but then the other half of your brain takes a look at that and goes is that really the only way she feels like she can escape by killing herself and her brain is parts of her brain are so infantile she has not been educated. She thinks that I, I'll fill up the sink and I'll drown myself. That's how I'll do it. That, that's how people kill themselves. That's how you, you drown. You fill up the sink and I can drown. Not knowing that, you know, she'll pass out and fall out of the sink and probably breathe oxygen and then come back. She'll just pass out. But she doesn't know that. Literally, she doesn't know. It's one of the saddest things God, because my, my first gut reaction was like, Jordan, that's not how that works. But then I was like, oh, Jordan, that's not how that works. I want to give her a hug. God, I want to give her a hug. I'm glad she changed her mind. Jesus, man. Three weeks later, Walsvik interviewed the oldest siblings, Jennifer and Joshua Turpin. Jennifer told him she had reached third grade at Meadow Creek Elementary in Fort Worth before her parents had taken her out of school. Jennifer said mother had eventually presented them with real high school diplomas. Or no, not real high school diplomas. She presented them with high school diplomas, but she said it wasn't real, said the investigator, because you simply ordered it online, which is what her mother did for her. She said that's for homeschoolers. The investigator also asked her whose idea it was to start chaining up the children as punishment. 
She told me it was her father's idea to utilize chains, Walsvik later testified. He said, things we're going to continue to keep missing in the house if we don't chain all of them. Jennifer said that Mother had opposed it, only wanting to chain up suspects who had stolen food or other things. When Walsvik interviewed Joshua, he was extremely agitated. To say that he was nervous and anxious would be an understatement, said the investigator. Joshua could barely speak at some points of the interview. And I bet, I bet you. You know, it speaks to how fucking strong Jordan is, you know? Joshua can barely speak, and probably some of the kids were very reluctant to talk at all, but Jordan was the one who, I mean, she left the house, she escaped, despite all odds, she didn't know what was going to happen, but she had to go and save her family. Jordan Turpin is a hero. All of the Turpin kids are heroes, but Jordan Turpin is, I, I would argue, the leader of the pack. A badass kid. Very sure of herself. And that's a hard thing to be when you're being abused. Joshua described the different levels of punishment his parents inflicted on the siblings and their progression over the years. The low threshold would be slapping, knocking on the head, hitting, and or throwing across the room, the investigator testified. And he made a point to explain to me that being pushed was not as simplistic as it sounds. If you were pushed by either his mother or the father, it threw you to the ground or across the room. It was to that degree. The next level of punishment would be whipping with a belt. It would start with the leather end, and his parents soon progressed to using the buckle end, which would break skin. Again, if this sounds familiar to you, trigger warning, fucking go and get help. If a sibling continued to disobey after that, their parents would use a paddle and then an oar to beat them on the lower back, buttocks, and legs. He described the oar as the worst of the worst, said Walsvik. Joshua, holy fucking shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Oh my god. Oh my god. Joshua said that his parents also beat them with what he called a switch, which was a metal tent pole wrapped in fiberglass with metal tips on the end that would break the skin. Normally, when your parents say, go get me a switch, because I had, I think I had my parents do that once to me, and then they never did it again because it was just stupid, and I think I got them the wrong stick, but they're like, go get me a switch. You go get a stick. You go out to the yard, and you go get a stick for your like parents or grandparents or authority figure to go spank you with. Um, <clears throat> not cool. I would argue that it does not help. I would argue that spanking your kid and hitting your kid actively harms them, um, but you do you. I would not do that. Don't do that. But this is not a switch. This is a metal tent pole wrapped in fiberglass. His parents would both implement and... What? His parents would both implement and utilize these devices. I assume... See, my English teacher brain thinks that implement and utilize are the same. Implement versus utilize. 
Okay. I don't know what the difference is. Alrighty. Uh, an implement is the tool or instrument for working with. And utilize is what you're doing with that implement. What? Or does it mean like hit them and put it in them? I fucking hope not. Ugh. This is part of the problem with going over cases like this is you, ugh. That's the only thing I can assume is like they would both both implement and utilize. I don't want to go in I don't want to go further. He preferred if his mother would do it as she did not have the strength his father did. I um Jesus. If these punishments still did not work to curb their behavior, they would be caged up like animals. Mother and father used two types of cages while they lived in the trailer in Rio Vista, Texas. The first, a metal-framed cage with a thick pegboard siding, could hold two offenders. At the bottom, there was just enough space to slide food inside, but they stopped using it after Jonathan managed to escape. Then, mother and father bought in a three-by-three-foot dog cage, which Joshua referred to as a common shepherd dog kennel. Three-by-three. That would be locked with an additional lock and key. You cannot stand up in it, and you cannot escape from it. His parents had one locked him in the cage for a day, Joshua said, after Mother caught him watching a Star Wars movie. Joshua also explained that they had moved into the double-wide trailer in Rio Vista after their house had become uninhabitable. Soon after, Mother and Father left, moving into a more comfortable apartment with their two youngest children, Jolinda and Julissa. They abandoned the children for three years, explained the investigator, to live in an apartment approximately 50 miles away. Joshua said that their parents had left him and Jennifer in charge of their eight younger siblings, changing their diapers and feeding them. Father occasionally came by with food, but they never saw mother. However, they continued to control their children over the phone, ordering Joshua and Jennifer to punish their siblings for any misdeeds or risk being put in timeouts in the cages themselves. During the interview, Joshua struggled to explain how he had once tried to rebel, but he was so overcome with emotion that he could not finish telling Walsvik the story. I chose to take the correct path to keep my siblings alive, Joshua said. On Friday, March 23rd, David and Louise Turpin were back in Riverside County Superior Court for a federal, a, fe, a, fu, a, a fucking thing. I know it. I know they were there for something. A, um, <laughs> a felony settlement conference. That's a tongue twister. A felony, a fel, a settlement felony conference. A felony settlement conference to discuss the exchange of discovery and other issues. A few minutes before the hearing started, Elizabeth Flores, Tricia Andreessen, and Melissa Moore arrived with Denise Perdue, an attorney from the Dr. Oz show, and waited outside the courtroom. They were allowed in to take their seats before the press entered. Inside, David and Louise were already at the defense table with their respective attorneys. For the first time, neither of the defendants were shackled. 
Before the hearing began, Judge Emma Smith summoned all the attorneys into her chambers for a conference. Alone at the defense table and just three feet apart, the defendants smiled at each other. Louise whispered something to David, but a female bailiff ordered her to be quiet. She smiled at her sister and cousin, who sat in the back row of the public gallery directly behind her. During the five-minute hearing, a representative of Riverside Adult Protective Services handed over two boxes of evidence containing information about the seven adult siblings. It was immediately sealed by the judge. After court adjourned for the day, reporters and TV crews besieged Elizabeth and Tricia outside the Riverside Hall of Justice, shouting questions about Louise. At one point, a tearful Elizabeth had a panic attack and had to sit down on a bench to recover. Once she regained her composure, she was escorted to a waiting car by Tricia and Melissa Moore. Outside his law offices, defense attorney David Mocker was asked about Elizabeth's recent announcement that she was writing a book and the ongoing coverage on Louise from the Dr. Oz show. Isn't that nice? Family, he said. It does sound like people are trying to turn it into a reality show and make a profit off of it. Two weeks after the seven adult Turpin children moved into their new home, their attorney, Caleb Mason, gave people an update on their progress. Their main priority, he said, would be to get an education. They are all bright and articulate, said Mason, and incredibly eager to study. The thing that they want more than anything else is an education. The attorney said a local university was drafting an educational plan to help them get their GEDs or high school diplomas. That is what we are trying to remedy right now, explained Mason. They do not want to be sequestered doing their education online. They want to get the same sort of education as anyone else. We are hoping that we can find them within the next couple of years, sitting in a college campus taking notes like anyone else. They have the same educational aspirations as any other group of young adults. Mason said it had been inspirational to witness the siblings adapting to the new lives after leaving the hospital. It's pretty new and different, he said, and I think quite extraordinarily to have some freedom, really for the first time, and experience life outside the type of constraints they had experienced. It's an extraordinarily positive thing for them, and it will take some time to get used to. They are moving to the next phase of their journey, which is actually beginning to rejoin the community. The siblings' transition to the outside world would deliberately be slow to help them acclimatize. Eventually, they are going to be just regular people, going to classes, getting jobs, and you would never know, said Mason. The problem is that they have been through some unparalleled trauma, so it's going to take a little time. But I think they are very resilient, and they are going to ultimately be fine. The Dr. Oz Show. Fuck Dr. Oz, let's say. Let's say that categorically. Fuck Dr. Oz. That exploitative son of a bitch. The Dr. Oz show flew Elizabeth Flores and Trisha Andreasen back to Princeton, West Virginia to film a two-part special tracing the Turpin family roots. Dr. Oz really latched onto this fucking case, didn't he? This is starting to get more, more and more gross. On March 27th, John Taylor had turned 94. Days later, his granddaughter and grandniece arrived at his house in Bailey Hollow Road to finally confront him about his sexual abuse. The original House of Horrors, as Melissa Moore described it. From the car, Trisha spotted their grandfather outside in the backyard, pottering around. Oh my god, cried Elizabeth, my heart is racing. Then Trisha got out of the car to confront him. She marched up to the front door and knocked, and Taylor opened the door and let her in. 
half an hour later, she came out again. A blank look on her face. Three weeks later, in front of a studio audience, Dr. Oz asked Trisha what had happened inside the house. I told him that I was Patty, she said, and he remembered me. And I said, I'd like to address something with you right now. No matter what you say, I forgive you. As the studio audience listened in rapt attention, Trisha explained that she had been armored up with her Bible, asking him about what he had done to Louise and the other female family members. He had the opportunity to share that, she explained, and he said, I don't remember what you're talking about. He denied everything. Trisha announced that she soon would be filing a criminal complaint against him. I'm going to press charges, she declared to the audience. It's time for me to not live in the past. Ten days after the Dr. Oz show aired, John Taylor died at Princeton Community Hospital of natural causes. In his obituary posted online by the funeral home, he was saluted as a highly decorated war hero and the former owner of the Shell Station on Athens Road. John proudly served his country in the United States Army, it read. During his time in the Army, he was awarded two Purple Hearts, Silver Star, five Bronze Stars, Good Conduct Medal, and French Fortiche Medal. John was also the past State President Purple Heart, past Commander of the VFW, Mercer County Veterans Council, member of the American Legion and DAV, and was chaplain for the military funerals. John was also a member of the Church of God. No mention was made of his granddaughter Louise, or her children. On April 9th, Riverside Assemblyman Jose Medina introduced a bill to the California State Assembly to tighten up regulations for homeschools. It was a direct response to the Turpin case and the lack of oversight it highlighted. I think it was clear from the incident in Paris that we don't have a lot of information on homeschooling in the state of California, Medina explained. But the Assemblyman knew it would be a difficult bill to get passed, as homeschooling was such a controversial subject. I call it swimming upstream, he said, struggling to make it to the finish line, to make it to the governor's desk. That's the process. In an editorial in The Californian, homeschooling advocate Maximo A. Gomez took issue with Medina's bill, labeling it progressive socialism. No doubt everyone has heard of the tragedy in Southern California in which homeschooling parents were arrested in January for the psychological and physical abuse of their 13 children, he wrote. Louise and David Turpin were charged with multiple felony counts of torture, child abuse, abuse of dependent adults, and false imprisonment. Now, the state of California, but principally, Assemblyman Jose Medina, is endeavoring to paint every homeschooling parent with the same brush. Every homeschooling parent in California has suddenly been transformed into a sexually depraved, masochistic, culting, cultist, gun-toting nutjob. No. That is a hasty generalization, sir, and you are wrong. He's not saying that all homeschooled people are like the Turpins. He's saying that we need to tighten up the regulations so it's not easy for a rando like David Turpin to just say that he has a homeschool, to say that he has a day school, that he's a principal, to just say it, and that's it. Because that's all he did. He said it, he submitted the paperwork, and no one fucking checked on him. I think that's what the bill is all about, tightening up the regulations so that the government will have to do their fucking job. That seems to be a common thread in the government, is that the people in the government just don't want to do their jobs. That's got to be rough. It's, it's, it's hard to be a congressman. It's hard to be a senator, isn't it? Isn't it? 
isn't it? Is it? Is it? Is it hard? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. <clears throat> At the Assembly Education Committee meeting on Wednesday, April twenty-fifth, Medina argued against this claim. I do not see a problem in the homeschool community, he told the committee. I respect parents as educators, being an educator myself. This bill is not an attempt in any way to attack homeschooling. But, after a three-hour debate, Medina's bill died without a vote ever being taken. Hundreds of homeschool parents and students from all over California had written to their assemblymen opposing the bill. After the meeting, Medina, vow Medina vowed to continue his fight to make homeschools more accountable. If they were, he said, perhaps what had happened with the Turpin family could have been avoided. Oh, it absolutely could have. It absolutely could have. At the end of April, Teresa Robinette announced that she was writing a tell-all book about her family to compete with her sister Elizabeth's Sisters of Secrets, about to be, about to be published. After the Turpin story first broke, Elizabeth had posted on Facebook that she started writing her childhood memoir two years earlier. It went into editing the same week the news hit, she wrote. One of her Facebook friends then asked if Teresa was also participating in it. No, replied Elizabeth. I'm an author. Teresa doesn't write books. On April 28th, Teresa and her half-brother Billy Lambert appeared in a two-hour oxygen cable special called The Turpin 13, Family Secrets Exposed. Hosted by Soledad O'Brien, the show retraced David and Louise's life in West Virginia, Texas, and California. Teresa said she had talked to her nieces and nephews since their escape, and they remembered all their Skype sessions with her. It was the best phone conversation I've ever had in my life, she told O'Brien. It was a very happy conversation, but as soon as I hung up, the tears came. Louise's youngest sister, now 37, said she would love to adopt two of the siblings, and Billy wanted three. I feel like I could do that fine, he said. If I could get three of the kids, I would love to try and help in any way I can. In an interview on Fox News to promote the special, Teresa revealed that Louise had called her several times collect from jail since her arrest. I wasn't planning on talking to her, she said. I'm still pretty mad. But I did accept one collect call from her a month ago. Teresa refused to reveal the details of the conversation, saying she wanted no further communication with her sister. She's tried to call me several times since then, she said. I have not accepted them because I am not paying to talk to her. On Friday, May 4th, David Turpin was hit with an additional eight counts of perjury, one for each of the years he'd filed a private school affidavit with the California Department of Education. He now faced a total of 50 felony charges. At a brief hearing at Riverside Superior Court, the two defendants were again unshackled. David did not enter a plea to the new charges, but was expected to do so at the next status hearing on May 18th. Judge Emma Smith also agreed to postpone the preliminary hearing until June 20th to give the defense more time to prepare. Oh, they're going to need it. Outside the courtroom, Deputy Public Defender David Mocker said his client still had the presumption of innocence to the new charges, as well as the older ones. The following week, Mocker filed a motion known as a demurrer, objecting to the eight new charges of perjury against his client. Mocker argued that the perjury charges were unrelated to the other charges as they didn't involve force, violence, or the physical neglect or abuse of David's children. 
Deputy District Attorney Kevin Beecham disagreed, filing a response in Superior Court. The falsity of giving education to multiple children, it stated, is directly connected to the commission of neglecting children, as children require education in order to eventually become independent. Therefore, the lack of educating children is directly connected to them becoming dependent adults. Well said. Arguing against the motion in court on May 18th, Mocker told Judge Bernard J. Schwartz, who had taken over the case from Emma Smith, that the new perjury charges bore no relation to the other crimes his client is accused of. A falsehood regarding education, if there is a falsehood, he argued, is not part of an atmosphere. It's simply a misstatement written in a document. But that falsehood is what actively contributed to that atmosphere, so fuck you. Addressing Beecham's filed response, Mocker told the court that lack of education does not necessarily lead to a dependent adult. A gentleman named Abraham Lincoln, he said, spent less than 12 months of his life in a classroom, as he did rather well for himself. And there are other examples as well, so there's no linkage, but I would ask the court to sustain the demurrer. Beecham took the floor for his rebuttal. Abraham Lincoln was educated, he began. That's a difference with what's alleged here, is that there are seven dependent adults that were not educated, not homeschooled, and didn't go to school. The deputy district attorney said their lack of education had created the atmosphere of neglect that led to dependency, and all the crimes were connected. Mocker then apologized to Judge Schwartz for not using the word autodidact in his initial argument. I have to bring that up, he told the judge, because the opportunities do not frequently come up, uh, because the opportunities do not come up frequently to say President Lincoln was an autodidact. That means a self-taught person. And I'd submit... All right, interrupted the judge. He had already reviewed the defense's motion and had made a decision. He said that the defendant's purported falsity had prevented the Department of Education from checking on his children's well-being and taking them to a proper school. And as a result, said Judge Schwartz, that's what's been described as prolonged neglectful atmosphere in an uneducated environment that led them to becoming dependent adults. I think that on its face is sufficient to overcome the demurrer. David Turpin then entered not guilty pleas to the eight counts of perjury, and Louise pleaded not guilty to three charges of false imprisonment and one of assault. Chapter 28 My two little sisters are chained up. What a title. What a fucking chapter heading. Oh my god. Boy, that chapter 27 is long as fuck. All right, here we go. By 8.30 a.m. on Wednesday, June 20th, Riverside Superior Court's Department 44 was packed with reporters and curious members of the public for David and Louise Turpin's preliminary hearing. Judge Bernard Schwartz was only allowing cameras to be used when he was not in the court, and no photographs or audio recordings could be taken during the proceedings. That was probably for the best. I cameras in the there's something about like cameras in the courtroom and trial by media that I don't agree with. While it is good to have transparency, um, it also opens up the can of worms of you know the court of public opinion. Um, I think of Casey Anthony, George Zimmerman, those two fucking bastards. They slipped through the cracks because of the absolute media circus. That was behind them. I, it had definitely something to do with it. At the defense table sat David Turpin, his white hair now cropped to over his ears and brushed forward. 
He was wearing a baggy blue shirt and a white, blue, and yellow checked tie. A few feet away sat his wife, wearing the same loose-fitting dark suit and white shirt. Neither were shackled, and both had exceedingly long, well-manicured fingernails. Deputy Public Defenders David Mocker and Allison Lowe whispered to David Turpin, while Louise smiled at Jeff Moore. To their left, at the prosecution table, sat Deputy D.A. Kevin Beecham and his co-counsel, Kim Degonia, as well as the lead investigator, Wade Walsvik. Judge Schwartz entered the courtroom, and the preliminary hearing began. With regard to the Jane and John Doe's, Beecham told the judge, referring to the 13 children, we will be referring to them with their first name. Then the people called their first witnesses, lead detective Tom Salisbury of the Riverside County Sheriff's Office. He told the court that there were two separate recordings of Jordan Turpin's 911 call on January 14th, 2018. She had first gotten through to the California Highway Patrol at 5.50 a.m. in the morning. Um, John Glatt, are you serious? 5 a.m. in the morning? Here's the thing. A.M. means morning. So 5 a.m. in the morning. That's one of my pet peeves. It's me, it, Jordan hates. My girlfriend hates when I do this, when I nitpick English shit. But I can't help it. 5 a.m. in the morning means 5 in the morning in the morning. Because A.M. means in the morning. It's like saying ATM machine. The M in ATM stands for machine. Automated teller machine. You say ATM machine, it means you're saying ATM machine. It's automated teller machine machine. It's an AT. It's a machine that makes ATMs. Is that, that's what you're saying? There's no such thing. Fuck you. Ooh. 5 a.m. in the morning, you're a fucking author. I will review it on Amazon. I will write a letter to my congressman. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. She had first gotten through to the California Highway Patrol at 5.50 a.m. Before being transferred to Riverside Sheriff's Department dispatcher Kelly Eckley three minutes later, Jordan's harrowing 20-minute 911 call was then played in the courtroom. Louise wiped away tears while her husband studiously took notes on a yellow legal pad. In the high quivering voice of a ten-year-old, Jordan misspelled her name as T-U-R-P-E-N, and when asked for her street address, she gave the zip code instead. I've never been out. I don't go out much, she told the dispatcher. I live in a family of 15 people, and my parents are abusive. They abuse us, and my little two sisters are chained up. They'll wake up at night and they'll start crying and they want me to call someone and help them. I wanted to call y'all and help my sisters. She said one of her brothers was also chained up in a bed. Asked if there was any medication in the house, Jordan replied, I don't know what medication is. No one went to the school, she told the dispatcher. A fake school is set up, she said. I haven't finished first grade and I'm 17. She had no idea of her mother's age or much about her, except that she didn't like any of her 13 children, except the two-year-old. Mother takes care of her right, said Jordan. Gaining composure, Jordan listed the ages of all her siblings, from the youngest to the oldest. She revealed that her parents had left them alone in a trailer in Texas for four years before they came to California. She told the dispatcher they lived in filth, and sometimes she struggled to breathe. 
Asked when she had last taken a bath, Jordan replied, About a year ago. At the end of the call, she mentioned that mother and father were the only people who ever came to the house, and the rest of their family didn't know them. Her aunt Elizabeth had asked to see them, she said, but her mother wouldn't allow it. Now, th there's something very harrowing about reading about the 911 call, but there's something even more harrowing when you listen to it. And I have heard the 911 call, and it is... It's amazing how, like, calm Jordan sounds. She's, it's very matter-of-fact. She sounds... She doesn't sound scared. She's just like, yep, this is what's happening. I need to get out. She, she's got a mission, and she's sticking to it. So... Here it is. Here's a little bit of the 911 call for you. On Friday, Louise and David Turpin will be sentenced to prison for the imprisonment and abuse of their 13 children. They face 25 years to life. The prosecutor says it's the worst case of child abuse he's ever seen. And on the eve of their sentencing, the 911 call made by the brave daughter who escaped that house of horrors has been released. It is difficult listening. What's your name? Jordan. It's the dramatic 911 call from a courageous teen. 17-year-old Jordan Turpin had just escaped from her suburban house of horrors in California. Okay, I live in a family of 15 people, and my parents are abusing, they abuse us, and my two little sisters right now are chained up. And how many of your siblings are tied up? Two of my sisters, one of my brothers. How are they tied up, with rope or with what? With chains. They're chained up to their bed. Inside Edition's exclusive video of conditions inside the house confirms everything Jordan describes in the call first obtained by ABC News. We live in filth, and sometimes I wake up and I can't breathe because how dirty the house is. When was the last time you had a bath? I don't know, almost a year ago. Here's Jim Murray. Jordan's bold and courageous act exposed all of the horrors inside this house. She escaped out of a side window holding her mother's cell phone. It had been deactivated, but could still dial one number, 911. I've never been out. I don't go out much, so I don't know anything about the streets or anything. Jordan is the Turpin daughter who created a secret YouTube account posting video of her longing for freedom. There was no inkling of their suffering when they were taken to Las Vegas to see their parents renew their wedding vows. The siblings were so malnourished, their growth was stunted. They looked younger than their real age. Jordan knew very little about the real world outside her house of horrors. Are you homeschooled? No, we don't do school. Our mother tells people we're private school, and she has a fake private school set up. But we don't really do school. I haven't finished first grade, and I'm 17. David and Louise Turpin have pled guilty to torture and false imprisonment and are scheduled to be sentenced on Friday. Jordan spoke bitterly about her mother on the 911 call. I don't know much about my mother. She doesn't like us. She doesn't spend time with us ever. Something you would say in a horror movie. We played the heartbreaking 911 call for Louise Turpin's sister Elizabeth, who will be in court to see the sentencing. If she has any care for her children in the bottom of her heart, somewhere hidden under all the evil, she should have some remorse. They're chained up to their bed. What's very interesting to me 
when I view footage of the Turpins, when I like I on on my Patreon, I posted um, the actual the wedding video, the um, the the wedding vow renewal video where David and Louise went to Vegas with Kent Ripley, the Elvis impersonator, and all the kids were with them. It's everybody, and, and you see how stunted they are socially. And you can kind of hear it in Jordan's voice. Like, you've probably, I mean, we've all been to school. Like, you went to middle school with somebody that just was a little bit socially awkward, and they have that weird affect in their voice. Like, yeah, I think we'll, we'll try to go, well, they kind of talk like this, and they don't know how to, but it's, you know, they just mean well, and they talk like And there's always at least somebody that has that strange, socially awkward, like, pitch and tone to their voice. Um... And I and I hear that in in Jordan Turpin, where she's like, I don't I don't know. I haven't been out. I've only, I, we had a bath a year ago. I haven't been out. I don't know much about the world. It's just very matter of fact. I don't think she realizes how sad it is, the stuff that she's saying. But what a fucking hero. What a pro. What a pro. Um, I, I think Jordan... Jordan Turpin should be proud of herself for the rest of her life. She deserves to be because this was, I I couldn't, I don't know if I, if I went through something like this, I don't know if I would have made it. I don't know if I would have made it. I don't know if I would have held out hope because hope at times is very hard for me to hold out. Even right now, even with as privileged as I am, my brain still like, sabotages me and makes me feel like there's no hope at at some points. But I know that that's not true. These kids didn't know that. I know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. They didn't. And they still found it. They still found it. Jordan Turpin drug her fucking family into the light. And those kids... The fact that they were all able to love without skipping a beat. They they still had hope for the world. They still had hope for themselves. It makes me want to cry. It makes me want to cry. It makes me want to cry because we, I could use that. I could use a little bit of that strength. I feel like we could use a little bit of that strength. That fucking unbridled, like no matter what, I'm still going to have hope. Golly, at some point when you're in a foxhole, I I would assume when you're being abused like that, when you're in a shitty situation, that's the only thing you have to hold on to. But I don't know if I if I would have. So I commend the Turpin children for surviving this, for surviving and being able to to live afterward. After Jordan's 911 call was played. Neither the prosecution nor defense had any questions. Detective Salisbury was excused, subject to recall later in the hearing. Then Deputy D.A. Beecham called his first witness, Deputy Manuel Campos of the Riverside County Sheriff's Department. The deputy had responded to Jordan Turpin's 911 call and later interviewed her at Paris Police Department. First, I want you to describe to the court what her appearance was like, said Beecham. Jordan appeared to have the mental capacity of somebody a lot younger than 17 years old, he replied. Defenders Jeff Moore and Allison Lowe both objected, and Judge Schwartz sustained it, ordering the deputy's answer to be stricken from the record. 
because that is not her appearance. That is her mental state. Her appearance means physical. Um, you got to clarify. Going off visually what she looked like, Beecham clarified. She was wearing a pink hat, said the deputy, had a jean jacket and blue jeans and white shoes. Her hair appeared to be unwashed. She appeared to not bathe regularly. Uh, she had a lot of dirt on her skin. It looked like it was caked on, and she had an odor emitting from her body, that of one who doesn't bathe regularly. Then Beecham asked how she referred to her parents during the interview. Mother and father, Campos replied. She said she was taught to address them that way because it was more like the Bible days. Did you ask her how she felt when she initially left the house? asked the prosecutor. Yes, he replied. She said she was scared to death. She said it was one of the scariest things she's ever done. She said she couldn't even dial 911 because she was so scared she was shaking. Boy, you couldn't tell in her voice. You couldn't tell in her voice. She was, I, I feel like she was scared as shit. And then once that phone call like happened and she was out, she was on a mission. And like, uh, okay, well, here's what's happening. My, ki my siblings are being chained up. Here's all the stuff that's happened. I, I haven't bathed in a year. Please help. Just get it all out because that's your one chance. And she fucking took it. Jordan told him that she couldn't stay in the house any longer, watching her chained up sisters crying in pain. She said it was hurting and depressing her, he told the judge, and she couldn't stand to watch it anymore. The morning she escaped, she said everyone was crying. She said Mother was yelling at everybody. She was half asleep. And Julissa had told her that Mother had told her that she was worse than the devil. Deputy Campos said he asked Jordan some very basic questions, and she didn't even know the date. The prosecutor then asked if Jordan had told Campos how long she had been planning her escape. Two years, answered Campos. She was trying to get a hold of a cell phone. How did she get a cell phone? asked the prosecutor. Her brother had received a brand new cell phone and got rid of his old one, said Campos, and she was able to get that old cell phone. The deputy testified that prior to the escape, Jordan had photographed Joanna and Julissa in chains on the cell phone to prove what was going on in the house. Smart fucking kid. Damn. On the subject of chains, said Beecham, did Jordan tell you how tight those chains were on Joanna and Julissa? Objection, shouted Objection. Objection, shouted Jeff Moore, springing to his feet. Calls for speculation. Overruled, said the judge. You may answer. She talked about a time where Julissa and Joanna slipped their hands out of the chains, said the deputy, and because of that, Mother put the chains tighter. The chains would leave marks around their wrists. Then Campos told the court about Jordan's daily routine. She spent 20 hours in the bedroom she shared with three of her sisters and was only allowed out with Mother's permission to eat, use the restroom, and brush her teeth. Did Jordan tell you the reasons why her little sisters were in chains? asked Beecham. Yes, said the deputy, because they were stealing candy from the kitchen. The prosecutor showed Campos a photograph of Jordan's bedroom, asking him to describe it. To my left, I see two bunk beds, he replied, and then to my right, I see another set of bunk beds with the top mattress on the floor. And what do you see on that mattress? asked Beecham. Two padlocks, Campos said. <coughs> He testified that Jordan had told him that the children only received one meal a day, either a peanut butter sandwich, a bologna sandwich, or a frozen burrito. She had constantly been eating peanut butter sandwiches for five years, he said, and she can't eat peanut butter anymore because she starts to gag and throw up. By then, she was only eating the burrito. 
The deputy then described how Mother had choked Jordan when she was 15 for watching a Justin Bieber video on Jennifer's cell phone. Her brother Joshua found out that she watched the video and told Mother, he said. And Mother choked her because of that and said very hurtful things. Did she tell you what hurtful things Mother said to her? asked Beecham. Yes. While Mother was choking her, she told her, Do you want to die? Jordan said that she responded by saying, No. And Mother said, Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You want to die and go to hell. The deputy then told Jordan how... Uh, the deputy then told the court how Jordan had accused father of attempting to sexually assault her when she was 12. He had only stopped when mother came up the stairs. She immediately jumped off, said Deputy Campos, pulled her pants up, and then mother walked in. Later, her father told her that she better not tell anyone what happened. Did Jordan tell you whether there was any other incidents of inappropriate or attempted inappropriate conduct between her and her father? Yes, replied the deputy. She said that father would try to force kisses on her mouth. How many times was that? She estimated ten times, said the deputy. Finally, Beecham asked if Jordan had mentioned leaving her room to socialize with her siblings. Yes, replied the deputy. When mother and father were not home, they would all come out of their rooms. Moving on to the Turpin's time living in Texas, Beecham asked, Did she ever tell you about a time period in which her parents did not live with her? Defender Allison Lowe immediately objected, telling the judge that anything that happened in Texas was not relevant to any of the charges. "'Are you going to go into incidents that occurred in Texas?' asked the judge. "'Yes,' said the prosecutor. "'What's it being offered for?' "'Well, one of the elements that we have to prove is dependency,' explained Beecham. "'I think what happened in Texas is relevant to how the adult children became dependent adults.' In addition, I think it shows the conditioning and the intent on the part of the defendants with regard to torture. Judge Schwartz ruled that the court could consider evidence from Texas, although the Turpins couldn't be charged for anything that occurred there as it was out of jurisdiction. Defense attorney Mocker wasn't pleased with the ruling. Now, Judge, he said, standing, given your ruling, I want to ask for a mistrial if this was a trial, so I guess I'll ask for a mis-preliminary hearing, and that the court declare this hearing over and we can start again at another time without that evidence. I feel very strongly that this is so prejudicial that we cannot get a fair preliminary hearing with that evidence in. Judge Schwartz noted the defense's objection, but said he would allow Texas evidence in the preliminary hearing. He promised to reconsider when it came up again in pre-trial motions if the trial went ahead. The prosecutor asked again, uh, asked Deputy Campos again if Jordan had mentioned a time when she didn't have any parents living with her. Yes, he answered. Between the ages of six and nine. Who took care of her? Her siblings, said the deputy, and I believe she specifically named Joshua. Did she tell you whether she saw her mother from the ages of six to nine? She said that she did not, he replied. The prosecutor finally asked if Jordan had witnessed mother inflicting any abuse on two-year-old Jenna. Yes, said Campos. She said that mother would hit her on the head with a pencil and that she also had pinched her. In cross-examination, Allison Lowe had asked if Jordan, um, Allison Lowe asked if Jordan had spoken about opening various social media accounts, including Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Yes, replied the deputy. And in fact, said the defender, she told you that she also uploaded YouTube videos of herself singing. She did have friends on social media because she told you about some of them, correct? She spoke about one friend, yes. 
And do you recall also that she discussed making another friend who was going to assist her with making music videos? Yes. Lowe asked if he was aware there was also a landline in the Turpin house. I believe one of the other children I spoke to did tell me that they had a landline in the house, Campos said. And Jordan did tell you that when mother and father were gone, asked Lowe, that she would come out of the room to hang out with her siblings. Yes. Lowe began asking pointed questions, attempting to show that her client, David Turpin, was rarely at the house and that Louise administered all the punishments. <coughs> did Jordan tell you how many hours her father was gone during the day? Asked Lowe. She said he was always gone working, Campos answered. And do you recall us talking about rules, in terms of them having to sit in their room, not go outside, etc.? Yes. Did Jordan tell you who enforced those rules? She said mother. And I just want to clarify, said Lowe, that when you talked about punishments for disobeying, that being knocked, that knocking heads, pulling hair, smacking in the face, etc., when Jordan described those incidents to you, she would say mother did them, correct? That is correct replied the deputy. She never described being struck or physically hit by her father. Correct. Because her father was at work? Correct. Let's talk about the chains, Lowe continued. Jordan mentioned three of her siblings that had been chained. She herself had never been chained, is that correct? Yes. And do you recall Jordan saying that father had not chained anyone else himself? Yes, I do. Uh, burp. So what is, what is the angle here? I Is she trying to, like, say that because he was never home, because he didn't physically, like, hit them or chain them up, that he's innocent? Because you're not. You're not innocent in this situation because... You lived in the house and you did nothing about the abuse. If you're living in a house where... Let's say you are a husband or you are a wife. You are a parental unit and your spouse, your partner, is abusing your family. If you sit there and do nothing, you're, you are to blame. You can get... That is exactly the reason why Dave Notek went to jail. Apart from murdering Shane. But it was all under the direction of Shelley. Well, he actually did carry out the... Well... I guess those are different situations. Now that I'm evaluating that, those are different. Because Dave actually did carry out some of the abuse. But I guess David Turpin did not. What's up with dudes named Dave? If your name is Dave, better watch out. I, I, I don't agree with this approach. He, he is absolutely to blame. <laughs> Prosecutor Beecham objected, arguing that Jordan had only spoken from her personal knowledge. Well, I assume it's based on what she told you she saw, said Judge Schwartz. She may not have seen everything, but based on what she saw, she never saw Father do that? That's correct, said the deputy. Lowe then addressed the allegation of sexual abuse against her client. Campos said Jordan had told him about the incident after he and a CPS worker had asked if there had been any inappropriate touching in the household. And her response was, she thinks her father has tried? Asked Lowe. Yes, said the deputy. <clears throat> now what was described to you 
was that her father was in the TV room in a recliner and that he pulled down her pants. Yes. She demonstrated for you that when he pulled her into his lap, that it was to his left leg, his left thigh, somewhere halfway in between the knee and the hip area. Is that correct? The deputy said she had demonstrated with her hands, but had not been specific with where his leg had been. Okay, did Jordan ever clarify when she said that he pulled down her pants whether or not that encompassed her underwear as well, or was it just her pants? She just said her pants. Okay, and besides pulling down her pants and sitting down on his lap, did she describe any other sort of touching? Lowe asked. No. To be clear, she continued, she didn't describe him touching her chest area, correct? That is correct. She didn't describe him touching her genital area. That is correct. Or her buttocks, for that matter? Correct. And she described that her father was clothed during this incident, correct? Yes. And what she told you was that she immediately stood up and pulled up her pants, correct? Yes. She said she didn't like that. That is correct. And her father never said anything during this actual incident, correct? Just that she'd better not tell anybody, said the deputy. <clears throat> So what the fuck it, what it, oh, this is dirty as fuck. I mean, it's a hard thing to be a defense attorney, but you got to pick how you approach it, and this is not the right approach. So I, I guess she's saying that because he, because there was no actual, like, assault, penetration, whatever the fuck, that he's innocent or that he shouldn't be charged with this when it was only curbed because mother was at the door. It would have happened if mother was not at the door. So, fuck that. She then moved on to the claims Jordan had made about her father trying to kiss her. I think you used the words forcible kissing, Lowe said, but to be clear, she said that she believed he tried to kiss her mouth on several occasions. Is that correct? Yeah, replied the deputy. She did use the word force, she said. He would try to force kisses on my mouth. But he never actually accomplished that, correct? She said he would just try. She didn't specify whether he was successful or not. Did she provide any sort of demonstration as to what this would encompass? No, she did not. Did she ever provide a specific time frame as to when any of these incidents occurred? Yes, Campo said. She said when she was 12, and the last time being when she was 15 or 16. After a short recess, Louise Turpin's attorney, Jeff Moore began his cross-examination. He first asked Deputy Campos about the choking incident. The deputy confirmed that Jordan couldn't remember if Mother had choked her with one or both of her hands. You asked her if she had lost consciousness during the incident, right? Asked Moore. Yes, Campos answered. And she told she hadn't. That is correct. And she actually volunteered that it didn't make a place, and that the word she used was place, correct? That is correct. Did you interpret that to mean bruise? Yes, he replied. Or some type of injury. Oh, my God. <clears throat> or some type of injury, yes. <clears throat> so Jordan was talking to this deputy about her mom choking her, and she was like, yeah, she choked me, but it didn't leave a place on my neck. She doesn't know what a bruise is. She doesn't know the word bruise. She doesn't know what a bruise is. That's how uneducated these children are. This is so fucked up. She called it a place. 
she didn't leave a place on me. Oh, my, my. The deputy said that Jordan was unable to estimate how long Mother had choked her for. But what she said was, said Moore, reading from his notes, Do you want to die? And I said, No. And she said, Yes, you do. Yes, you do. She said, You want to die and go to hell. I know it lasted that long, right? That is correct. Well, her description gives you a couple pieces of information, right? Moore said. It gives you kind of an estimate of how long it lasted, more or less? Yes. Long enough for a short exchange of words from both persons, right? Yes. It also tells you that she was able to verbalize while she was being choked, doesn't it? Yes, conceded the deputy. You can talk while being choked and still not be able to breathe because you can, verbalization still can include, can also include the fucking guttural verbalizations of someone being choked, you fucking asshole. After the mid-morning break, co-prosecutor Kim Dagonia recalled lead detective Tom Salisbury to the stand. He had interviewed both defendants at Paris Police Department the day of the escape. Dagonia began by asking him about his hour-long interview with 13-year-old Jolinda a few hours after the rescue. Did the two of you speak about her education? asked Dagonia. That prior to moving to Murrieta in June of 2010 that she was being homeschooled, said the detective, and that they had worked their way up to the letter I of the alphabet. But since that time, her mom had done a little bit of additional homeschooling with them at the Paris house, and that she had worked her way up to the letter T or J. She couldn't remember which one. What did she believe was her grade level, she asked. Well, she wanted to accelerate to the first grade because she was tired of doing kindergarten work. Did she indicate how mother would react if they would get questions or answers wrong while doing the kindergarten curriculum? Yes, he replied. If they didn't do straight lines or stay within lines, mother would pull their hair and throw them across the room. When you were speaking to her, asked Dagonia, did you notice her inability to understand basic words, like the word estimate? Yes. There were a lot of words that she had problems understanding, and she self-admitted that she even had a problem with the word said, S-A-I-D. Oh my god. The detective also said Jolinda, who was born in Texas, did not know whether it was a state or a country. Did she call Texas a country? asked Dagonia. Yes. <sighs> the lack of education hits me sideways. It makes me angry in a way that I didn't expect it to make me angry. Like, I knew that this was going to make me angry, but the lack of education is really making me mad. The prosecutor also asked what Jolinda had told him about the hall monitors who Mother used as her eyes and ears. He said that her two oldest siblings, Jennifer and Joshua, acted as hall monitors, as well as her older sisters, Jeanette and Jeanetta and Julianne. And did she indicate why there were hall monitors in their home? Yes, Salisbury answered. To stop the kids getting candy and other things out of Mother's room and to stop the kids stealing food out of the kitchen. Then, Dagonia asked what Jolinda had said about her early life in Rio Vista, Texas. Salisbury replied that she knew she had been born in Texas and had lived in a trailer with her siblings. It was without her parents present, said the detective. Mostly her older brother Joshua cared for them and that the trailer was filthy, dirty, smelled bad. 
Jolinda told Salisbury that she hadn't bathed since May 2017. Degonia then asked what physical abuse Jolinda had suffered. Pulling and yanking of the hair, he replied, and in addition to that she had been pinched by her mother, choked by her mother, and hit by her mother. Jolinda had also told him how mother would get angry and hit her on the head with her knuckles. Did Jolinda indicate to you whether she had been choked by mother? asked the prosecutor. Yes, Salisbury said. She was taking a bath, and it wasn't until she got into the tub that she realized she had to go to the bathroom. And her mother got extremely upset and pinched her. She placed her full hands around Jolinda's neck and picked her up off the ground. Dagonia then turned to the lead detective's interview later that day with Jonathan, who had been chained up when the police had first arrived. Did he know whether anyone else other than himself was chained? she asked. Yes, he did. He knew that he, along with his two younger sisters, Julissa and Joanna, had been chained up, told they were suspects, quote-unquote. When you said they were suspects, asked Dagonia, what did he tell you about that? We talked a lot about suspects, said Salisbury. He said that was a term that mother used. They were suspects of sealing stuff and being disrespectful to their parents and siblings. The prosecutor asked what Jonathan had done to become a suspect. The original thing, said the detective, was he took his older brother's camera and hid it in the trash can, and it later got thrown out. And then he was a suspect of stealing food. The detective said Jonathan had been chained up on and off for six and a half years, first with ropes in the Murrieta house and then chains in Paris. So ropes first to restrain and then chains. Yes. Did he know why mother and father switched from ropes to chains? Objection, said Lowe. Misstates the testimony and assumes facts not in evidence. Overruled, said Judge Schwartz. When they tied him with ropes, explained the detective, he was able to escape using his teeth, and so they switched to what he referred to as small chains, and then when he was able to slide those off the bed rail, they used thicker, heavier chains. Salisbury testified that Jonathan told him father had first chained him up, and then mother had taken over. When officers arrived at the house, the detective said they had found Jonathan chained to his upper bunk bed. He had been there for a couple of weeks, but had previously been chained up to two months at a time. In cross-examination, Allison Lowe returned to the detective's testimony that Jolinda had difficulty understanding certain words. And I think one of the examples you used was estimate, she said. Yes. But overall, she continued, isn't it true that she understood the questions you were asking her and provided appropriate responses? Yes. In fact, you told her that she was very articulate, isn't that correct? Yes, answered the detective. I tried to encourage the kids during the interview. Did Jolinda ever tell you about any injuries that were caused by her father? Asked Lowe. No, Salisbury said. Chapter 29 she was terrified of her mother. After breaking for lunch, the preliminary hearing continued, and the prosecution called in its third witness, Investigator Brett Rooker of the Riverside County Sheriff's Department. Under Kim Dagonia's direct, Rooker testified that he had interviewed Joanna, Jessica, and Joy Turpin at the Paris Police Department on the day of their escape. The prosecutor began by asking about any abuse Joanna had suffered after moving to California. She said that when she was about eight or nine, living in Marietta, said the investigator, that she was thrown down the stairs by her mother. She, did she indicate whether, after she was thrown down the stairs, she had injuries? 
She said her neck and back hurt, replied Rooker, and that she was dizzy. The prosecutor asked why Mother had thrown her down the stairs. She was caught in Mother's room by her mother. Mother became very upset and threw her around the bedroom and was yelling at her. And then when she stood up, she pushed her down the stairs. Did she indicate to you, Dagonia continued, whether or not she's been abused in any other way physically by mother or father? She said that she was chained up. What did she tell you about that? She said that the chaining started because she would take things and that she would have dark places on her arms from the chains. Rooker had asked Joanna to show him the dark places. She lift up her sleeves on her jacket, he recalled. I saw dirt caked on her arms. He said she had been chained up since the previous October. The prosecutor then showed Rooker a photograph of Joanna's arms a few hours after the rescue. And what are we looking at here? She asked. The inside of her left forearm, he replied. And you can see that there's clean spots on her wrists from where the chains were. The prosecutor then showed him a photograph of the 14-year-old's right forearm, with a similar clean ring around the wrists where the chains had been. Did she describe for you how often she would take a bath? asked Dagonia. She told me that the last time she had a bath was about eight months prior to that on Mother's Day. Now, did Joanna speak to you about whether or not any of the siblings would stay up all night and monitor the hall? Yeah, Rooker said. She said that Julianne and Janetta would stay in the hallway, and since they moved to Paris, somebody would be up all hours, day and night, watching them to make sure nobody stole food or snuck in Mother's room. <coughs> oh, excuse me. E. Did she indicate about how she felt about mother and father? She said she was terrified of her mother, he replied. Joanna told him that mother physically beat her, pulling her hair, and hitting her on the head. Did she indicate anything to you about the blinds in their bedroom? Asked Dagonia. Yes, Rooker replied. She believed that when the chains started... Mother had closed her window and adjusted the blinds so that nobody could see in. The prosecutor then questioned him about the photographs of the six minor siblings' clothing taken at the Paris Police Department. Rooker said that he had actually picked up the items to pose for the police photographer. How did they feel? asked Dagonia. They were very heavy and soiled, he answered. How did they smell? Putrid. All the clothing was difficult to lay out. Why so? just because of the smell. Was it dirty? Extremely. The investigator testified that he had later gone to Corona Regional Medical Center to collect and photograph the seven adult siblings' as clothing. Did you notice the same smell, odor, the dirty clothing, on the adults as you did the minors? asked Agonia. Yes, Rooker replied. The investigator told the court that after talking to the seven adults, he had placed an involuntary 5150 hold on them for their own safety. <laughs> They were all gravely disabled adults, Rooker testified. Objection, your honor, said attorney Mocker, rising to his feet. That states a conclusion. Sustained, the judge ruled. Gravely disabled adult is stricken. <coughs> that is a bit of a stretch. That's a, that's a generalization. They were gravely abused adults. Disabled? Mm. I mean, by definition of the word, in some cases, maybe, but no. I, I think disabled is such a shitty term, anyway. 
The investigator then testified that he had received police academy training on dealing with adults that were a disanger to themselves or others. I've 5150 numerous people, he said. And that day, they were evaluated not just by me, but by the other investigators in his case. We all decided that just based on their diminished capacity, their lack of education, they were unable to care for themselves in any way. So I placed a 5150 hold on them so they could get the care they needed. At that point, asked the prosecutor, were the adult Turpins then admitted to Corona Regional? Yes, ma'am, he replied. In cross-examination, David Mocker asked if Joanna had been crying during the interview. She was crying, Rooker said. She said she was scared. And did she tell you she was afraid for her parents? Asked Mocker. Yes, she did. Then, David Turpin's lead attorney continued his strategy of mitigating his client's role in what had happened. Did Joanna tell you that David Turpin was always at work? He questioned. Yes, replied Rooker. Did she tell you that when he was at home on the weekends, he and Louise were gone all day? Yes. Did she tell you that David Turpin did not do anything to her? I don't believe she used those exact words, Rooker said. Okay, pressed Mocker. Did she indicate that David Turpin hurt her? No. Now, did she indicate that her parents argued? Objection, said Dagonia. Relevance. Overruled, said Judge Schwartz. You may answer. I don't recall. Then Mocker asked Joanna asked if, if Joanna had mentioned how several of the adult siblings had been allowed to watch television. She said the older ones that helped mother were able to watch television, Rooker replied. Did she tell you that Jessica and Joy always go with Louise when she leaves the house? Yes. And she said that her brother Joshua goes to college. Yes, he replied. All right, said the defender. And you inquired about sexual abuse? Yes. And was her answer negative? Yes. Kim Dagonia had no redirect questions, and Rooker was excused. The next witness was Deputy Dan Brown of the Riverside County Sheriff's Office, who had interviewed Julissa, Joshua, and Janetta a few hours after their rescue. He spent just under two hours with 11-year-old Julissa, who told him about the sibling's diet. She was always hungry, said the deputy. They would have lunch and supper at the same time as one meal. It would be either peanut butter sandwiches or jalapeno bologna sandwiches and then some sort of freezer food. Did she indicate whether or not sometimes they received just plain bread? Asked Dagonia. Yes, she did. Did she indicate whether or not mother and father ate different from them than they ate? They meaning the Turpin children. Yes, the parents ate different food, Brown said. She said specifically that the parents would eat Jersey Mike's, pizza, french fries. But the children would not, correct? Correct. Then, the prosecutor asked what Julissa had told him about pies. She stated that mother would purchase pies, said Brown, and either leave them in the fridge or in the pantry. They would wait until they got moldy, and then she would throw them in the trash. Did Julissa indicate whether or not she wanted to eat those pies? Yes, she did. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but, like, that's such a weird... Trials are so crazy. Like, how how by the book you have to be in terms of, like, delivering, you know, prosecution and defending. Like, and did she indicate whether or not she wanted to eat said pies? Yes, she did. No further questions, Your Honor. This is a pie... This is a pie trial. It's a pile. Uh, That's a dumb joke. I'm... I'm sorry for that. (laughs) 
Of course she did. Julissa also told Brown that she'd last had a bath on Mother's Day of 2017. Her mother washed her hair, and she washed the rest of her body. She changed her clothing uh, to go out for Mother's Day, and then immediately upon returning back home, she had to put the same dirty, soiled clothing back on. When was the last time Julissa had her sheets changed? asked Dagonia. Christmas 2016, replied the deputy. And you interviewed her January 14th, 2018? That is correct. The prosecutor then asked if Julissa had mentioned a special punishment for the siblings during the Christmas holiday. Prior to Christmas, answered Brown, her and several of her siblings were stealing food out of the pantry because they were so hungry. They lost Christmas. And did she indicate what it meant to lose Christmas in the Turpin household? You were not allowed to celebrate with the rest of the family, but you had to watch. So Julissa, along with a couple of other siblings, their punishment for stealing food and being hungry was they lost their Christmas. Objection, Jeff Moore interrupted. Argumentative and leading. It is leading, said the judge, sustained. The prosecutor then asked when Julissa had first been chained up. Around the age of 11, said Brown, was when her mother started chaining her by her wrists. And what was she chained to? Her bedpost. Her mattress was on the ground, and she would sit on the ground and have the chains wrapped around each wrist like a bracelet, and then also around the bedpost. Boy, oh boy. The deputy said that Julissa was able to lie on her back while she was chained up, and was initially able to stand up. Once her mother found out that she was able to stand up while chained, he said, she threatened to shorten the length of the chain. She was chained as deputies arrived at the residence. Did she indicate how she became unchained when deputies arrived at the residence? <laughs> yes. Her older sister Jessica ran to the bedroom and quickly unchained her. Brown said he had inspected Julissa's arms for what she called indentations. So when she pulled her sleeves up, he said, there were white spots on her wrists from where the chains had actually rubbed the caked-on dirt off. Did she indicate how many days straight she had been in chains? At that time, she said 15. Did she indicate if she had been chained up prior to those 15 days? Yes, said the deputy. She had been chained up two times previously, anywhere between two months and four months. Dagonia moved on to what Julissa had told him about what she referred to as spankings on the face, being slapped across her face near her eyes. <clears throat> what the fuck? What? It just... Why? Why? Ah... We're never going to know. I don't think we're ever going to know why the fuck they did this. And that, I think, is one of the most frustrating parts. With, like, a case like a Chris Watts, you know, he wanted to have his mistress. He wanted to have his cake and eat it, too. So he felt that the only way to do it was to murder his family, I guess. You have a, at least a direction that you can take with the why. Why did they do this to their kids? Why did they... I don't fucking know, man. I don't know why they felt the need to have so many and then also felt the need to abuse them like that. Did they just... Were they lazy and just didn't want to take care of them? Or, or did, it just seems like the abuse is like, you are bad. You are awful. You're a problem. You're a suspect. You're... You want to die. You're going to hell. You're worse than the devil. There's a hatred of these children that doesn't just come with, like, not wanting to take care of them. Or who knows? Maybe it is just that. because I would be remiss to say that there are not 
so many parents who treat their children like shit because they don't want them. And that's an awful thing to do. That, that is a reason why you should not have children. If you don't want to take care of them, don't have them. <clears throat> but they felt, but they wanted these kids is the thing. They also wanted them. Did they want the idea of the children rather than the child? Because I, I get that. Oh, you better believe I get that. The, I, the child is, you know, much more involved than the idea of the child. That's, that's me. That's, that's what I am. That's what I am. I was adopted, and I'm pretty sure my parents, uh, I don't know, I don't think they knew what they were getting into with me, because I'm very loud, boisterous, obnoxious. I'm a lot to handle. So was the idea of me better than the actual, you know, execution of me, you know? I don't think so. In my case, I can't speak for the Turpins. But then again, this is just my speculation. So, like, why the fuck did they, like, hit her on the eyes? Spankings across the face, being slapped across her face near her eyes. Did she indicate who did that, mother or father? She said mother. Did she indicate whether or not father was present for these spankings on the face? She said father was aware and did nothing to stop it. Did she indicate her feelings toward mother and father? She said she was equally as terrified of mother as she was of father. In her cross-examination, David Turpin's lawyer, Allison Lowe, asked Deputy Brown if he recalled Julissa stating that father has never attacked us. Yes. And do you remember asking Julissa who runs the show, who's the big boss? Yes. And what was her answer? Mother, replied the deputy. The prosecution's fifth witness was Patrick Morris, a supervising investigator with the district attorney's office. He had been called to testify about the Turpin children's physical and mental conditions, having interviewed the medical professionals who had treated them. Dagonia asked Morris to discuss his interview with Dr. Mark Massey of the Riverside University Health System, who treated the youngest Turpin siblings. Did Dr. Massey indicate the type of physical issues with Julissa? She asked. He described her as perhaps the most severe of the siblings as far as her condition, said Morris. She had what he described as severe protein calorie malnutrition, coupled with a condition known as cachexia, which is muscle wasting. The investigator said that the 11-year-old the eleven -year -old's mid-upper arms were the size of a four-month-old baby's. She was underweight for her age, he continued. He said that her height had stunted due to malnutrition, she was 46 pounds, at least 15 pounds underweight. She had inflammation and liver damage due to malnutrition. She also had psychosocial dwarfism, which is a stunted growth or development that's a result in living in an abusive or neglectful environment. The investigator said that Dr. Massey also found that 15-year-old James suffered from many of the same ailments. He said his overall retarded development, said Morris, could be due to malnutrition, psychosocial dwarfism, or a combination of the two. And this is not retarded like, <clears throat> like your Carlos Mencia. This is like retarded as in slowed down. We forget that that word also has another medical meaning. Retarded growth, retarded development, slowed down. We could also, if we wanted to be a little bit more correct, we could say arrested development probably. <clears throat> um, but he is the doctor. 
He said his overall retarded development could be due to malnutrition, psychosocial dwarfism, or a combination of the two. But either way, he said his growth was stunted and it was still abuse. Dr. Massey said James also had some psychological problems as a result of neglect. He exhibited antisocial characteristics, said Morris, specifically mentioning that James talked about wanting to kill animals and believed his dreams could predict the future. As for Jordan, the investigator said Dr. Massey had sent her for speech therapy as she was so hard to understand. And he attributed that to lack of socialization and isolation, said Morris. Remember when I was talking about Jordan Turpin's like weird affect? Like, I don't know, what I'm 16, I, I'm only 17, and we haven't taken a bath, I don't know. She's probably so hard to understand, especially when she gets going, because she does not have that socialization. And I think... Like in school, you see people talk like that. They don't have they, they they don't socialize as much as other people because they might be ostracized, they might be bullied, they might be considered nerds, and they might be mistreated. But that doesn't mean that they're not good people. <clears throat> it's a shame that most of us learn that far too late until we're adults. All right, Massey. What else? And he attributed that to lack of socialization and isolation. He also did express that he was concerned about her ability to integrate into society because she seemed very childlike for her age. Morris testified that he had also interviewed Dr. Sophia Grant, who runs the child abuse system, a child abuse unit at Riverside University Health System. She had examined Jolinda, finding that she too was suffering from severe malnutrition and muscle wasting. At 13 years old, she still had not started puberty. She would have expected her to have some kind of breast development, the investigator explained, and she hadn't exhibited that. And did she attribute that to anything regarding her health? asked Dagonia. Malnutrition, Morris replied. What did Dr. Grant have to say about Jana? She said the two-year-old was better fed than her siblings, but still not enough. In cross-examination, David Mocker just asked a few questions about two-year-old Jana, the best fed of all the siblings. According to your report, said the defender, Jana did not suffer from severe protein malnutrition. Is that right? That's correct. And she did not suffer from vitamin D deficiency. Not that they discussed with me, no. Okay, said the defender. And that she did not suffer from a low potassium level. Not that they discussed with me. Then, Mocker commented on how all the siblings had gained weight in the hospitals and were doing well. <clears throat> Are they trying to, like, say that, oh, the baby wasn't abused, so, huh, look at that. The baby wasn't abused as much because she wasn't alive long enough for them to abuse her. That's it. Oh, I think a big puzzle piece just fell into my lap from what I was talking about before. The idea of these children might have been more appealing than the actual children themselves. And there are so many people that have this mentality. And I don't think that not all people that have this mentality are going to abuse their children. A small percentage might, but the majority will not. The, the majority will just have a child, you know, hastily and not think about it. <clears throat> and it's because all they want is a baby. They don't want to raise a kid. They don't want to raise a toddler. They want to raise a baby. 
And when they're done with that baby, and i.e. when that baby stops being a baby, then move on to the other kid and neglect that one. So many parents are like that. Oh, I'm, oh my God, I want a kid so bad. But really, they just want a little baby. They just want a little baby to play with, which is not a reason to have a child. That's a reason to go volunteer at a hospital and go hold some fucking crack babies. Go hold some touched, starved children. That's a reason to go do that. But not to have your own child. But again, don't follow my advice You can if you don't want to. I, I'm just speaking from my personal opinion, you know, I don't think that that's a very noble reason to have a child, because when you're having a child, you're committing to, to fucking raise that kid and instill in them a sense of responsibility, a sense of self-worth, a sense of self-love. You, you need to make that kid capable when you raise that kid. Okay, so if you you don't have the money to send him to college, you don't have the money to send him to good school, you don't have the money to buy him good clothes, you make sure that that kid knows that they are loved, that you love them, and that they should love themselves. Because that alone will take anybody anywhere. If I had learned how to love myself at an early age, oh my God, I would be unstoppable. I would be on the fucking moon right now. I, I would be colonizing Mars if I had learned that from a young age. So, did you hear that little shake? There's a cat next to us. Hello? Oh, hi, how are you? Come here. So, did, did David and Louise Turpin, and I think Louise Turpin mostly, did they just want babies? Did they just want to have little babies? Maybes. Uh, I burped in you. <laughs> then, Mocker commented on how all the siblings had gained weight in the hospitals and were doing well. And you wrote in your report that all of the minors were responding vigorously to treatment. Is that what the doctors told you? In a general sense, yes, replied Morris. As Jeff Moore had no questions, Morris was excused, and the judge recessed for an afternoon break. When the court reconvened, Deputy D.A. Kevin Beecham called his sixth and final witness, his senior investigator, Wade Walsvik. Beecham began by asking Walsvik about Joy Turpin's journal, in which she'd recorded the date the Turpins had moved to California. She indicated they crossed into California on June 4th of 2010, Walsvik added, adding that they moved into the Murrieta house eight days later. Beecham then questioned him about the eight affidavits David Turpin had filed with the California Department of Education for the City Day School in Murrieta and the Sandcastle Day School in Paris. He asked him to read to the court the affirmation that Turpin had signed for the 2010 school year. This is a private full-time school, read Walsvik, that offers instruction in several branches of study required to be taught in public schools of the state, that offers this instruction in English, and that keeps attendance records which is basically, <clears throat> boy, if you, if I was home, if I was actually like homeschooling children and wanting to do like a private school and really like do it right and not be weird about it and, you know, have a fucking, uh, a, a motto for my school, like a direction, a, a rationale for my education, because your rationale in education is like your 
armor for your lessons. Why are you teaching this? Well, here's my rationale, bitch. Here are the reasons, because it'll teach these students bing, bang, boom, boom, bang. Life skills, annotation skills, critical thinking skills, bing, bang, bong. You find the standard that works with whatever you needed to work with. Um, This is the shittiest mission statement for a private school I have ever heard. This is like the bare bones mission statement. You know what you're supposed to do as a fucking educator? You're supposed to take attendance. You're supposed to teach in a language. And you're supposed to make sure that you don't set the fucking kids on fire. And they don't set each other on fire. So this is a full-time private school that offers instruction in several branches of study required to be taught in public schools of the state that offers this instruction in English and that keeps attendance records is just saying we are a school. That's it. That's it. That's it. We're a school. Trust us. That's that's basically, hey, trust us. We're, We're a school. We're schooling over here. Maybe if I was starting a my rationale for a private school would be This is a private full-time school that offers instruction in branches of study required to be taught in public schools of the state and also offers branches of study not required to be taught by the state, but that supplement, you know, or that bolster a student's education in these given standards, you know, that fosters critical thinking skills and creativity, you know, that... um, that offers this instruction in English and Spanish and all these languages that keeps detailed attendance records and that allows their students to express themselves exactly as they are, that allows themselves to, that allows these students to follow their passions and to hone whatever crafts that they want to hone. It allows these students to have fun while learning. If I were to be a principal of a school, I would want it to be as fun as fucking possible. I would want it to be not so much a focus on high stakes testing, not so much a focus on grades. There should still be grades. There should still be testing. But it shouldn't be the end all be all, you know? It, there should be other benchmarks that kids should be required to meet, you know? It, it's... I don't agree with the way that education is now. It's just to pop out drones. And I want to pop out people. This mission statement is just, we're a school, trust us, bye. Walsvik confirmed that the address of the City Day School was 39550 St. Honore Drive, the Turpin's home in Marietta, and that the defendant had signed it. And what is Mr. Turpin's title, according to this form? asked Beecham. His title is principal, replied Walsvik. The investigator said that Turpin had filed the affidavit on online under the penalty of perjury, signing it electronically. He had filed identical ones each October for the next seven years. Investigator Walsvik said he had also interviewed Jennifer, Joshua, Janetta, Jordan, and Julissa about the education they had received at their father's private day school. Jordan referred to it as homeschooling, said Walsvik. She said it would happen occasionally, and they would go for extended periods of time with nothing. No education, training, or anything from her mother. Did she give you an idea of what extended periods of time was? Asked the prosecutor. Years. So, during the times that they weren't attending school or being taught, where would all the siblings be? She actually used the word nothing. 
said Walsvik, at the Murrieta address. Her mother directed them to vacate their bedrooms and sit on the floors upstairs in the hallway throughout the entire day. Did she tell you why they had to sit in the hallway during the day? Yes. She said her mother made it crystal clear that they were not to be seen by the neighbors because they were supposedly in school, and they were not. Walsvik said he had also interviewed Jennifer, who had attended elementary school up to third grade in Fort Worth, and she described her sibling's education as minimal. It would go for brief days, said Walsvik, very short periods of time, and then lapse for upwards of several years, prior to having, again, a couple of days' worth of lessons, and that would be it. Turn the page correctly. And we know that she never finished high school, correct? Asked Beecham. She never went past the third grade. Did she tell you whether she was able to really socialize with anybody outside her family? She did, he replied, only in a secretive capacity while online. But socializing as in actually having a flesh-and-blood friend. Did she have any of those? None. The investigator had also interviewed Dr. Fari Kamalpur of the Corona Regional Medical Center, who had treated the seven adult siblings. Now, asked Beecham, specifically with regard to Jennifer, what was her height and weight upon admission? Jennifer was five foot three inches and weighed 80 pounds. She was approximately 35 pounds underweight for her age, sex, and height. What was the chief diagnosis for Jennifer? She was suffering as... She was described as suffering from low cognition, ability to perform mental tasks. She was also suffering from severe protein caloric malnutrition. Dr. Kamalpour told Walsvik that Jennifer had a severe B12 deficiency and cachexia, or muscle wastage. The prosecutor asked if the doctor had detailed the effects of severe malnutrition associated with cachexia. She began by describing the effects on adult females, specifically their ability to reproduce, said the investigator. And then she specifically identified Jennifer and Jessica as probably never being able to bear children. Then, to audible gasps from the public gallery, the prosecutor showed the court the two photographs Jordan had taken of her two younger sisters chained to their beds. Can we find those pictures? I hope not. I, I doubt it. I figured that those would be the one the one set of pictures that they would not show because it shows children in in harm. No, I do not think you can find them. You can find a lot of shit online though. You can find a lot of gross stuff online. Oh, I grew up I'm I am twenty six years old. I was born in nineteen ninety five and I will tell you I grew up in the early days of the internet, the unregulated wild, wild fucking west days of the internet. I remember sixth grade was when I watched Two Girls, One Cup for the first time because one of my friends told me to watch it and that it was funny and it fucking scarred me and whatever, whatever. I'm completely desensitized. If there's one thing that like I didn't think was a thing until it actually happened to me was like desensitization from like gore and horrible shit oh yeah it'll happen it has happened to me um and i attribute that to the internet and how easy it is to just look at horrid shit 
my girlfriend got me a little strawberry acai refresher from Starbucks. I've never had that before. This shit is busting. Soothing my throat so that I can read about abuse. <laughs> Sorry. What is this? Asked Beecham. It is a picture of Joanna, the 14-year-old female in chains sitting on the bed. The prosecutor then displayed another photo. That is a close-up photograph of Joanna's wrists, Walsvik said, showing the bruising and indentation caused by the chains. Nothing further, said the prosecutor. Oh, fuck! That is a watershed moment in, in the trial. Oh my my. Just, here's the two pictures of the abuse. Here's the photographic evidence. Nothing further. Damn. In cross-examination, David Mocker asked if Jordan Turpin had told him that at one point her mother cooked meals and taught them, but then things had gone downhill. That is correct, said Walsvik. Okay, Mocker continued. She also told you that when the family lived in Murrieta, Louise Turpin made all the decisions. Yes, he replied. The defender then asked if Jennifer had witnessed a domestic violence when she was younger. She did. And she also told you that David Turpin promised to stop, and he kept that promise. Isn't that correct? That is correct. Then Mocker turned his attention to the seven adult siblings' medical records, asking if Dr. Camelpour had told him some of them suffered from neuropathy. Correct, said Walsvik. Did she tell you that can be reversed with vitamins and improved diet? I believe she did, he said. Now, Dr. Camelpour talked to you about the phrase severe iron deficiency. That's correct. Is that another term for anemia? Can be, yes. And can anemia be treated with iron supplements and improved diet? Asked Mocker. Did Dr. Camelpour tell you that? I don't believe she said that to me, but I do know that, yes. Thank you, sir. Nothing further. At 4.30 p.m., the prosecution rested their case. As both sets of defense lawyers had decided not to call any witnesses, Judge Schwartz recessed for the day. Final arguments would start the next day at 10 a.m. Oh, shit. Already at final arguments, that's the end of chapter 29, and of course they couldn't call any fucking witnesses because they didn't have anybody that was willing to defend them. They... they I... It was hard to be a defense lawyer on this case, I bet. We're going to finish the book. Fuck it. Let's do it. Chapter 30, Cruel and Unusual Punishment and Extreme Pain. At 8.30 the next morning, all seven adult Turpin siblings attended a secret probate hearing in the Riverside Historic Courthouse. <coughs> Fifteen minutes before the hearing, a sheriff's deputy ordered Press Enterprise reporter Brian Rokos to vacate the hallway so the siblings could enter unseen. Probate hearings are normally open to the public, but this one was closed. It had been called to decide whether the Riverside County Public Guardian would continue as conservator to care for the seven siblings. Two deputies were stationed outside the courtroom to stop anyone entering. After the hearing concluded, bailiffs cleared the hallway so the Turpin siblings could leave via an underground garage without being photographed. Then, they were driven away to their undisclosed new home in the rural countryside. Just a few blocks away, 
David and Louise Turpin were being brought into Department 44 of the Riverside Supreme Court for closing arguments. The three defense attorneys had filed a motion to strike all the highly damaging testimony about the abuse in Texas from the day before. Fuck that. Deputy DA Kevin Beecham addressed the judge, arguing that incidents in Texas played a crucial role in what happened later in California. So the physical abuse in Texas, he said, started with slapping, hitting, throwing about the room, and it aggravated to belts, leather end, and then the buckle end. If the belt wasn't correcting the disobedience, David Turpin would beat his own children with an oar, a wooden paddle, or a metal switch. Once the family moved into the double-wide trailer because their house had become uninhabitable, David began keeping his children in cages. Then he and Louise had abandoned them for nearly four years. This is just like a Lord of the Flies analogy, Beecham told the judge, where these children are just left to fend for themselves during the most tender years of their lives. But even though they were now living 50 miles away, the defendants were still able to order some of the older siblings to punish the younger ones by caging them. It's unimaginable that they had so much control over their children, said Beecham, while they were out of the house or out of the trailer. Once they moved to California, he told the judge, David Turpin no longer physically abused his children as he had in Texas. However, the prosecutor argued, this was because... He had more control over them than he ever did before. He did initiate the chaining, said Beecham. It was his idea to do the chaining of all the kids. But the reason why he didn't physically abuse them, why he wasn't using an oar or a switch, maybe even a buckle end of the belt, is because he didn't need to. He conditioned the children over the years, over decades of physical torment and abuse, all stemming from Texas. He conditioned them in a way that's unimaginable. The prosecutor said that the children could have run away in California, but had been brainwashed by all that had happened in Texas. I agree. I agree. <clears throat> they laid the groundwork in Texas for the kids to not to feel like they couldn't leave, to feel like they couldn't escape. There apparently was a landline in the house, said Beecham. They could have called for help. Sure, at any time when one of the select few were outside the house with mother, they could scream for help. But they were conditioned, conditioned from what had happened in Texas, conditioned by abandonment. Even during the years apart from their parents, the siblings were forced to obey them. And if they didn't obey, said Beecham, they were imprisoned. They were put in cages. And this is only after they were abused physically, to an extent that's unimaginable. He told the judge that when Jennifer had tried to run away in Texas, she was unable to survive on her own. Damn, man. That's uh, the lack of education and all the other bullshit. It really like, yeah, the kids could try to escape, but how do you make it on your own? They've got no social skills. They are that far behind. Oh, these people are fucking evil. David and Louise Turpin are two. Now that we are now on page 293 of this book, if you are, if you're with me till the fucking bitter end, David and Louise Turpin are two of the most evil individuals I've ever read about. The complete selfishness that drives them is unparalleled in a lot of cases that I've read about, and 
Every time I read this book, I get a nasty taste in my mouth because of the two of them. But then it gets washed away because I remember how strong these fucking kids are. And what good did it do her? He asked. She tried to get a job, but she had no driver's license. She had no real prospects. No socialization whatsoever. So what what did she do? She called her mother. And her mother came, picked her up, and took her away. Once again, the prosecutor showed the court the two harrowing photographs Jordan had taken of her two sisters in shackles. Looking at Julissa, age 11, he said, extremely pale, skinny, emaciated with chains, the kids were imprisoned in Texas, and they were imprisoned in California. And her other sister, Joanna, dark, sunken eyes. She's 14, and she looks like she's seven years old. He then showed the court photographs of the children's putrid clothing that hadn't been changed for months. Dirt caked on them, he said. They weren't allowed to take baths. They got used to this because of Texas. Because in Texas, they were getting left to fend for their own selves. When David Turpin came home from work, he would see his children in this terrible state, wearing heavily soiled clothing that stunk. All this stemming from the conditioning in Texas, he told the judge. Texas is extremely relevant. Not only is it relevant, it's extremely probative because of the intent of both Mr. and Mrs. Turpin. What they did, how they did it, how they schemed in Texas. The level of abuse in Texas mirrors that of the abuse in California. It shows that both of these defendants have intent, the intent to cause cruel and unusual punishment and extreme pain and suffering to those poor 13 kids here in California. It shows that they had knowledge of the conditioning of these kids. The prosecutor explained that he had concentrated on David Turpin's role as his attorneys had attempted to minimize his part in what had happened. Mr. Turpin initiated the chaining, he said. He wanted to chain all his children. It was his idea. He wanted all the kids to be chained. When he'd come home, he would see the status of his children. Hungry, skinny, dirty, smelly, not leaving the house, coming into the kitchen one time to stand, one at a time to stand and eat. Beecham reminded the judge that for eight years running, David had submitted forms to the Department of Education, stating that he was running a private day school for his children. He actually lists the grades of all his children, Beecham said, of all the children attending school. He's not merely sitting idly by. He is a direct perpetrator of the neglect, of the abuse. The prosecutor described the physical damage inflicted on the children as torture and argued that David Turpin was criminally culpable. We're talking about 11 of the 12 kids on the torture counts having muscle atrophy, muscle wasting away, he told the judge. They are emaciated, incredibly underweight. The adults were on average 32 pounds underweight. We had many of the minors within a 0.01 percentile of the body weight that they should be at. 0.01. That's incredible. At the very least, he facilitated the abuse. And the direct, natural, and probable consequence of that, to the point where they are so emaciated, so malnourished, to the point of cachexia, is great bodily injury. They endured extreme pain and suffering as a result. Then, David Mocker stood up to argue against allowing the Texas evidence into the preliminary hearing. He began by labeling the prosecution's claim of the children's conditioning in Texas as an interesting theory. 
devoid of expert testimony. I mean, I'm not a psychology expert, he told the judge. Are we talking Stockholm Syndrome? Are we talking some other kind of psychological conditioning? I have no idea. Mocker said that the prosecution's unproved theory was reason enough to strike the Texas testimony. The Texas evidence is inflammatory, he told the judge. Once you've heard it, it's difficult to forget it. I believe the Texas evidence, based on Mr. Beecham's argument, needs to go out. It's not relevant. Once you hear it, you'll never forget it. Oh, no shit. That's why you don't want it in there. You just admitted that in front of everybody, you fuck. The defense attorney called it highly prejudicial, saying that it would deprive his client of the right to have a fair preliminary hearing. As the court knows, said the white-bearded attorney, I'm fond of quoting Shakespeare, the speeches of Abraham Lincoln, but in this case, I think a scene from a Russian novel, Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, is particularly appropriate. He explained that in the novel, one of the three brothers, Ivan, tried to reconcile the existence of a benevolent, all-powerful God with all the evil in the world. But Ivan, who framed evil as the suffering of children, was unable to do so. So he turned his back on God and religion. Now why do I bring this up? asked Mocker. Yeah, fucking why? I bring it up because, as Mr. Beecham has eloquently described it, in this case we see the enormous suffering of children. It's cataloged for years. We're not here to defend the conduct. We're here to determine what this conduct means. Where does it fit in the corpus of the criminal law? As David and Louise Turpin looked on dispassionately, Mocker told the Kurt that it was only natural to protect innocent children from harm. They are innocent, vulnerable, and undeserving of any evil, he said. Evil inflicted upon children is so unacceptable to all of us that it may help to explain the interest in this case. But that's just a guess, and that's not the truly, and it's not the truly important point. The more important point is that our horror at the suffering of children presents a risk today right here in this courtroom. Crimes against children trigger outrage and anger. And in these circumstances, emotion, my emotions, the court's emotions, Mr. Beecham's emotions, can overcome our ability to reason. And reason is the life of the law. He then urged the judge to dismiss all the torture charges against his client. Um, is his whole argument just like, listen, crimes against children make people mad. They make people angry. And when you get angry, you lose your sense of judgment. You, you lose track of stuff. So because this evidence will make people angry, strike it from the record and don't include it in the trial. No, you include that shit even if it makes you angry because I trust that as adults and as, you know, people of the democratic and judicial process that they can put aside their angry feelings and prosecute in the name of justice. So his his argument is like, this, this is going to make people angry. We can't make people angry. Get it out of here. <laughs> Fuck him. I think the word torture, he argued, is very similar to the suffering of children. I think it elicits a powerful and visceral reaction in us. That's important. I know. It's important because, like the suffering of children, the word torture tempts us to step away from reason and follow instinct. No, no, that's a hasty generalization that you're making, fucker. 
The attorney said that torture was inapplicable in the cases of Joshua, who went to college and watched television with his parents, and Jessica and Joy, who went out shopping with their mother. Jordan described these two as, quote, their real children, he said. Jennifer, the oldest of the Turpin children, had social media accounts. She helped Jordan set up online accounts. For these four, I think dismissal of the torture charge is an easy call. He then told the judge that Louise Turpin was far more culpable for what had happened than his client. It's my view that this is a particularly malevolent intent involved with torture, and it can be argued, I suppose, that Louise had that intent. My client, David Turpin, there's very thin evidence as to what he did in California. He worked a lot. He was gone a great deal. Julissa indicated that he, she could not recall a single abusive incident where Mr. Turpin was at home. Marker concluded that there was some evidence that his client had suggested the chaining, but had called it hearsay twice removed. And he acknowledged that when his client came home, he must have seen how thin his children were and how they were dressed. Yeah. A blind man would know that there was something wrong in the house. But was he aiding that? I don't think the evidence is there because he was not at home, according to Julissa, at any time that an abusive incident took place. So I believe Mr. Turpin could only be convicted of torture on an aiding and abetting theory. Then, Mocker turned his attention to the seven counts of abuse of a dependent adult, saying none of the siblings over 18 fit the, dis fit the description. What? <clears throat> they are not dependent adults simply because they don't have a driver's license. They are not dependent adults because their education has been woefully neglected. A dependent adult, as I understand it, is someone with physical or developmental disabilities. And we don't have that here. An attorney then asked the judge to dismiss some of the counts as they were outside the statute of limitations, and others because the younger siblings were treated far better than some of the younger ones. Allison Lowe then took over to address the charge that David Turpin had committed a lewd act on his daughter. Like Mr. Mocker, I think, she began, if we take emotion and speculation out of it, then the elements haven't been proved here. Lowe told the judge that neither the intent nor the force elements of the charge existed. The evidence presented here, she said, is devoid of clear sexual intent as required. The defendant must commit the act with the intent of arousing, appealing to, or gratifying the lust, passions, or sexual desires of himself or the child. The attorney said, wow, holy moly. Are you kidding me? I think the evidence was there that he was, that he had clear sexual intent. He pulled her fucking pants down. I, ugh. What the fuck? You got to be a special type of person to be a criminal defense attorney. You got to be a special type of fuck. Oh, my, my. The attorney said that the court had heard two different versions of what had happened from separate officers. One had said Jordan's pants were pulled down once, while the other had said twice. Nevertheless, she said, the evidence showed it happened very quickly and nothing sexual was said. Lowe said that the officers who questioned Jordan had never asked how far her pants were pulled down, and if any underwear had been removed. She never described any removal of actual underwear, said Lowe, or something more extensive. As the court knows, there's been no allegation of touching of genitalia of either party. There's been no described attempt at groping beyond seating her down on his left leg. We know that Jordan told law enforcement, based on the evidence presented, that she got up on her own, pulled up her pants, 
and this happened before Mother entered the room, and no attempt was made to prevent that from happening. There was very thin evidence, she argued, that her client had subsequently forced kisses on her daughter, and for how long? I would ask the court to discharge the count, she said. Finally, Louise Turpin's attorney, Jeff Moore, addressed the judge, saying that he was in an embarrassing position as his arguments had already been presented to the court by Mr. Mocker. First, I want to make it clear, he said, that I'm not submitting, as a wink, concession that the elements have been met. He asked the judge to reduce the assault charge that his client had choked Jordan as punishment for watching a Justin Bieber video from a felony to a misdemeanor. I believe it would be appropriate based on the testimony at prelim, he said. In a rebuttal, prosecutor Kevin Beecham argued that the defendant could have caused her daughter great bodily harm. He said he could have understood Mother's reaction if her daughter had been setting the house on fire. But Jordan, at age 15, he said, watching a Justin Bieber video being choked and threatened, for Miss Turpin to make the statement, Do you want to die? I'm going to kill you, and you're going to hell. Jordan was actually afraid and really believed that she was going to die. I think that defeats any real justification to lower the felony charge to a misdemeanor. Not only that, Jordan said it didn't hurt for just a minute, but it hurt for two days. The prosecutor also argued that the seven older siblings were certainly dependent adults who could not look after themselves. It's obvious, he told the judge. The fact that they became dependent adults after decades and decades of abuse, no experts needed at this time to show that they were conditioned. He said that officers had placed a 5150 hold on the seven adult siblings as it was obvious that they could not care for themselves. It's not because they didn't have a driver's license, he explained, or they didn't hold a job, or because they were uneducated. It's because, again, they were conditioned to such a point, desocialized to such a point, where we have a 17-year-old that presents like a 5-year-old. We have a 29-year-old with a third-grade education who weighs 80 pounds. So after years and years and decades of, again, conditioning and torturous intent by the defendants, they, unfortunately, became dependent adults. Chapter 31 There's a Plethora of Evidence Judge Schwartz began his summation by addressing the defense motion to strike all Texas evidence from the record. He explained that a preliminary hearing was different from a trial, as a jury may have difficulty separating what happened in Texas and in California. <clears throat> and obviously, in front of a jury, said the judge, there may be severe prejudice with respect to listening to additional acts that were purportedly committed by Mr. and Mrs. Turpin. Judge Schwartz said that it would be decided later in pre-trial motions whether or not the Texas evidence would be admissible at trial. Is the evidence relevant? asked the judge. I think it's extraordinarily relevant, and it's prejudicial, but I think it's probative to the grand story that is being told in the evidence that unfolded yesterday. He said that the evidence clearly met the legal requirements of torture, an infliction of great bodily injury to cause cruel, extreme pain and suffering. There is a plethora of evidence in that regard, said the judge beginning with the feeding of the children. They ate twice a day for a while, and then it was once a day. He said that their extremely limited diet of peanut butter and jalapeno bologna sandwiches led to malnutrition and anemia. There's very little food value in those items, he said, 
and the repetition of the food. I think Jordan's statement was that she got to a point where she couldn't even digest the peanut butter anymore because she was so sick of it. So clearly, the children were not fed appropriately. Then, Judge Schwartz addressed the various punishments the defendants had inflicted on their own children after moving to California. There was various hitting, slapping, hair-pulling, throwing about the room, pushing, which was described as not just a push, but a severe push, causing a substantial distance between the person inflicting that act and the child. And, of course, the chaining, which would occur for weeks, maybe months at a time, left some bruising on the children that were chained. Judge Schwartz said that he was astounded at the lack of medical care and that none of the children had ever seen a dentist. The lack of socialization, he said. The lack of allowing the children to go out and play with other children and even, for that matter, socialize with each other. And we know what negative effects that has on the upbringing of a child and the ability to be able to function in society. The lack of education, he continued. It was clear that these children were not being educated. One of the children got to the letter I, and I think she was around 15 years old. The judge then spoke on the deplorable conditions the Turpin siblings lived in. The court saw the exhibits that were shown, he said, the soiled underwear that they wore for many, many months, and the other clothing that was not washed. The bed sheets were not washed for upwards of two years. And just the idea that they lived in that kind of environment, I think Jordan had testified that in spite of her warnings not to look out the window, she actually had to stick her head out the window to get away from the odor to allow her to be able to breathe. Judge Schwartz said that this had resulted in severe physical damage to the children, including malnutrition, cachexia, psychosocial dwarfism, scoliosis, and stunted growth. And so clearly, the infliction of great bodily injury occurred to each one of these children to various degrees. In some instances... Some of these things will be fixed. I know they were fed and gained weight, but some of these things are not going to be fixed in the medical conditions that they have. Although Louise carried out most of the physical punishment in California, Schwartz said her husband had done nothing to prevent it. So here we have clearly Mother, or Mrs. Turpin, inflicting much of the corporal punishment causing great bodily injury. But Mr. Turpin, either directly as a perpetrator or as an aider and a better, clearly had a duty to ensure that these children were cared for in a proper manner and it's clear to the court that he failed in that duty. The court thinks that the elements of torture have been met as to Mr. Turpin. He then turned to the charge that the defendant had committed a lewd and lascivious act on his then 12-year-old daughter. Oy, oy, oy. Court heard evidence yesterday that according to Jordan, Mr. Turpin told her to come over, pulled her pants down. There is one version where this is all that occurs... The other version is that she pulled them back up and he pulled them back down. Either way, said the judge, he used some degree of force to pull her pants down, as well as then picking her up and placing her on his lap. And she was only able to get away when mother came home. What is of significance of the court, Schwartz continued, is its, is its consideration of this count is the kissing. It certainly shows the intent of Mr. Turpin and why he may have done this activity for some sort of sexual gratification. Also, what was of significance to the court was him telling her after the fact, don't tell anyone. Why would he say this if nothing happened, or if it was an activity that was completely innocuous? Mr. Turpin is her father. He's in a position of trust and in a position of power over her, especially in this case when there is such tight control over the children. The judge then addressed whether the seven older siblings were dependent adults. 
He said, It was only common sense for the deputies to put a 5150 hold on them because of their lack of education and inability to care for themselves. The only one of all the charges against the defendant Schwartz was not convinced of was that of child endangerment on two-year-old Jana. It's true that she lived in an environment that was horrific, he said, one that obviously she wasn't even aware of. But there was testimony that she was cared for properly. There's no evidence that she was subjected to any of these kinds of physical abuse or emotional abuse. The judge then dismissed that single charge against both defendants before moving on to the 12 charges of false imprisonment. It's clear to the court, he said, that there were two kinds of false imprisonment that were ongoing in the case. One was the chaining, the physical chaining of the children, but the other was just simply the inability of the children to be able to leave the house. He noted that when some of the older siblings did leave the house, they went with mother and were never allowed to be alone. And most of the time, they all had to remain in their bedrooms, only coming downstairs to eat. Even her son that went to college, she was waiting by the fucking door for him. The whole time, from beginning to end, there was no alone time for these kids. He also addressed, uh, wait, nope. He noted that when some of the older siblings did leave the house, they went with mother and were never allowed to leave. Most of the time, they all had to remain in their bedrooms, coming downstairs to eat. It was compelling to hear Jordan's 911 call yesterday, said the judge to talk about the fact that she barely, if ever, was able to get out of the house. She didn't even know her own address. She knew nothing about the neighborhood because she basically had never been out of the house. He also addressed defense attorney Jeff Moore's request to lower the choking charge against Louise Turpin to a misdemeanor. He noted that after Mother told Jordan she was going to die, the young teenager believed she would, and that quite severe physical force had been used, which hurt her neck for two days. This is sufficient to show that this was infliction of force likely to cause great bodily injury and may have caused great bodily injury. Finally, Schwartz again, Judge Schwartz addressed the eight counts of perjury against David Turpin regarding his non-existent private school. The document submitted by David Turpin in the private homeschool affidavit, said the judge, basically says that the children are getting full schooling as if they were in public school. And the reality here is that they were getting no schooling or virtually no schooling. These children were left unattended for their ability to be able to learn and be educated during the formative years of their life. And so it's clear to the court that the schooling was not being given to these children in accordance under the law. Schwartz ruled that there was probable cause to believe that both defendants had abused and tortured 12 of their 13 children. He ordered them to stand trial on more than four dozen felony counts each. He set an arraignment for Friday, August 3rd with a trial date within 60 days of that. Is that acceptable to you, Mr. Turpin? asked the judge. Yes, sir, David replied. And Mrs. Turpin? Yes, she replied in a soft whisper. Then the defense attorney asked Judge Schwartz to seal the audio recording of Jordan's 911 call and the two photographs she had taken of her sisters in change. chains. And that's why we can only get a little clip of the 911 call rather than the whole 20-minute call because I'm sure it's fucking harrowing. We've had enough adverse publicity in this case, said David Mocker. I don't think we need more. I don't think we need those photographs to be circulating. Good call. 
Later, the district attorney's office announced that it would not release the audio tape or the two photographs that it was, as it was a pending criminal case. Outside the court, Press Enterprise reporter Brian Rokos asked David Mockery if he planned to cha- request a change of venue and move the trial out of Riverside County. Probably, he replied, if we go to trial. Epilogue. At 8.30 a.m. on Friday, August 3rd, 2018, David and Louise Turpin were back in Riverside County Superior Court for the rearrangement. Before the proceedings began, Judge Bernard Schwartz was handed a written request on behalf of the 13 Turpin children for their birth certificates, IDs, and a camera that had been seized by police. It was a sign that they were trying to move on with their lives. As neither prosecutors nor the defense lawyers opposed it, the judge signed an order to return their personal items. Then he adjourned the arraignment for a further four weeks. On August 31st, Judge Schwartz denied a motion by a defense attorney, David Mocker, to sever David Turpin's eight perjury charges from the other 41. District uh, Deputy District Attorney Kevin Beecham told the judge that his sham home school was an integral part of the neglect the seven adult children had suffered, rendering them unable to care for themselves. The judge agreed. The lack of education is part and parcel to the entirety of the case, he said. Then both the defendants entered pleads of not guilty to all 88 charges against them. Their next court appearance on October 5th, Jeff Moore announced that Louise had now been diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder, asking the judge to release her from jail to undergo mental health treatment under a pretrial diversion program. The actions that underlie the charges, explained Moore, were motivated or caused by the mental health disorder. Mrs. Turpin does not pose a threat to the public. She is amenable to treatment in a non-custodial setting. Deputy D.A. Beecham argued that the defense had not established that the personality disorder was responsible for Louise's actions. She is an unreasonable risk to the public, he told the court. Judge Schwartz agreed and turned down the defense request. At the end of November, Judge Schwartz set a trial date for September 3, 2019. On Friday, February 2nd, 2019, David and Louise Turpin dramatically agreed to plead guilty to 14 felony counts each, including torture, false imprisonment, and child endangerment. The couple had originally faced nearly 50 counts each, but prosecutors had agreed to drop many of them. At the hearing, Louise cried and dabbed her eyes as she admitted to each charge, while David appeared stoic without a hint of emotion. The couple now face spending the rest of their lives behind bars. Under the reduced charges, the Turpins each admitted to at least one crime for each of their 12 children. No charges were ever filed for their now three-year-old daughter. Those pleas will result in life sentences, declared Riverside County District Attorney Mike Hestron at a press conference after the hearing. I think it's fair that the sentence was equivalent to first-degree murder. Two months later, on Good Friday, April 19th, 2019, David and Louise Turpin were sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. During the emotional hearing, Jennifer and Joshua Turpin stepped out in public for the first time to deliver heart-wrenching impact statements to their parents. They were, com- they were comforted by a Labrador support dog called Raider. My parents took my whole life from me But now I'm taking my whole life back, said Jennifer, now 30, in a shaky, high-pitched voice. I saw my dad change my mom. They almost changed me, but I realized what was happening. 
I fought to become the person I am. I'm a fighter. I'm strong. And I'm shooting through life like a rocket. Oh, oh my God. Then Joshua, now 27, walked up to the stand and thanked his parents for teaching him about God and faith. Now at college, studying to be a software engineer, he told them that he still has nightmares about being chained up and beaten. That is the past, and this is now, he told the court. I love my parents and have forgiven them for a lot of things that they did to us. I have learned so much and become independent. Joshua also read out a statement from his sister Jessica. Although it may not have been the best way of raising us, it said, I'm glad that they did, because it made me the person I am today. David Turpin's attorney then read out his statement to the court. I've never intended for any harm to come to my children, it said. I'm sorry if anything... I'm sorry if I've done anything to cause them harm. It's the if that... Fuck you, David. You... You cry in court and you plead not guilty and you take responsibility, but you're only doing it to lessen your charges, you sons of bitches. You don't give a shit and you don't think you did anything was wrong. If I've done anything to cause them harm, when you know for a fact that you did. We have photographic evidence, medical evidence of these kids. uh, These kids should not have fucking cachexia and muscle wasting. But they did because of you. If, if, that is a fucking offensive word. That is an offensive word to put in that fucking statement. You stupid cow. You fucking dumb cunt. I am, I apologize for my language, but fuck David and Louise Turpin. If I want to spit in his fucking time wasting mouth. I hope and pray my children can stay close to each other since their mother and father cannot be there for them. You never were, you bastard. Finally, Louise Turpin addressed the court. I want them to know that mom and dad are going to be okay. Fuck you! Oh my god! Are you serious? Are you serious? The the thing, the, your statement, your victim impact statement, this is the moment where you can accept responsibility and fucking apologize for your actions. She says, don't worry, we'll be okay. I'll be okay. Don't worry, kids. We're gonna be all right. Holy shit! This is the most offensive chapter of the book. Or it's up there. Wow! Wow. Ah... I want them to know that mom and dad are going to be okay, she declared, dabbing her eyes with a tissue. I'm blessed to be the mother of each of them. I also want them to know I believe God has a special plan for them. I'm sorry for everything I've done to hurt my children. I love my children so much. Before handing down sentences, Judge Bernard Schwartz told David and Louise Turpin, Children are indeed a gift. They're a gift to their parents, they're a gift to their family, to their friends, and they're a gift to society. They are a gift to their parents in the sense that a parent should be joyful of firsts in their child's life. The first day of school, 
first date, first graduation, first job, marriage. All of those things should be enjoyed by the parents and child alike. Judge Schwartz told the defendants that their selfish, cruel, and inhumane children treatment of their children had permanently altered their ability to learn and thrive. It delayed their mental, physical, and emotional development, he said, to the extent that they do thrive. And we've learnt today that a couple of them are. It will not be because of you both, but in spite of you both. And like that, we're done. Holy shit. <clears throat> I can't believe it. We're done. And you know what? I feel so happy too because I haven't actually read a book cover to cover in a long time. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, there it is. The family next door. We are done. We have read through the whole thing. And I agree with the judge's statement that those kids will not thrive because of their family, but in spite of them. And that is a common thread for a lot of, a lot of families and a lot of kids. And if you are in a similar situation, I know that we're, none of us are in nearly the same situation as the Turpin kids being abused to fuck hell. But if you're in a similar situation in that you were set up for failure or you know you were set up to not thrive that you were raised or nurtured conditionally you are thriving right now in spite of who raised you not because of them you're fucking nailing it just because you're here just because you're alive making it another day that is a victory Sometimes we have days where the only victory we have is that we survived. And we forget, because of the hustle and bustle of our brains, that it's still a victory and it should be celebrated just like the big ones. So if that's your only victory today, I'm glad you're here and I'm celebrating you. All right. Damn, I'm glad I can cross that off the to-do list. We are fucking done. If you want to listen to me read another book, I'm reading The Perfect Father on my Patreon, www.patreon.com slash ham. Only $10 a month, but I get that it can be too much for some. If that's how you choose to give love, if you want to go to the supplemental material, by God bless you, go ahead and check it out. If you want to watch me play video games, check out my Twitch stream, twitch.tv slash Hamilton Streams. H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N-S-T-R-E-A-M-S. I almost got that wrong. I wonder what book we're going to read next. Um, let me know. Why don't you send me an email? Send me a voice message. You got any, any, any takers? I have so many fucking books that I can choose from. I have a feeling that I want the next book to be something cult related. I don't know. I might ask my patrons. I might ask my listeners. Who, who knows? But if you've made it to the end of this podcast, bless you. If you've made it to the end of the book, you're a sick fuck and I love you. Get out of here. This has been A Slice of Ham. 